some movie yeah <laughs> wow i don't know what to do now I've, I've, i use a whole box of kleenexes i've cried i've, I've well, uh, uh, we're back yeah for yet another exciting installment of saturday night movie sleepovers coming off of our two-year anniversary episode yeah and we're um an epic and we're tr- transitioning right into our edited together for your that was a, yeah. Last week's episode was like a serial. We did a serial based on a serial, and then we uh, not to like not to serially eat, and uh, we just said, you know what? We'll edit it all together. We'll release it as a huge talkie. Yeah, and uh, we probably could have we could have doled that one out if we did half hour um, of, uh, over a year. Yeah, if we did half hour <laughs> integrals, I was going to say we we could have got about um, let's see three fives or ten and ten fives or seventeen. We would have probably got about uh five or six episodes we could have did the whole in there a show called serial <laughs> on a podcast we could have did a whole season of that that could have been our uh maybe that's that's something we're um an angle we're not <coughs> doing we're you know we're just we're just release. it's like netflix we release it all at once well i have t- talking to other podcasters i've heard that they're all for splitting it up yeah the mentality being that if somebody in- enjoyed the first episode They'll come back. That they'll come back and watch and listen to the second episode. So you're kind of guaranteed Patronage. at least that many downloads for uh, the second episode. Yeah, but uh, I would. We throw caution to the wind. Yeah, I, I don't know. I and would we f- say if you're gonna listen to this, you're gonna listen to all of it. Goddamn it! And it's in its entirety, <laughs> in its own un unbastard un- and unbridled uh, original format, <laughs> except for the picture, which is formatted to fit the, your screen. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I don't know if you'd lose, like, I don't know if people just, like, you know, because me, I would, I would be into that, but then I would never go back and, like, you know, download anything else or whatever. You know, some people always, you always have that, like, little cuss with people who may just get bored, never come back to you. Or we're released, we're just getting it all, so they've got it, they won't ever listen to it. And then you have the, if people see that it's three hours long, or however, the people that are possibly deterred, be like, that's way too long. Yeah, whoa, 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 whoa. Granted, nobody listens to anything in one sitting anyway. But whoa, maybe they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What the hell? Is this an error? <laughs> this has got to be an error. For three hours? Three that hours. is twice the length of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Did they do a radio play? Did they do it live to tape? Did they do a... We read the novelization <laughs> aloud. <laughs> it took us three hours to read the novelization because um, we did all different characters and all that kind of thing. Um, but we segued from last week to that to this, and this is already where it's we're always we go from we just go anniversary right into the extravaganza that the, the is Halloween, October. the Halloween, the, the madness of Halloween. We um, you don't know this as the listeners. Please, well, you're talking to me. I was like, I don't know. <laughs> but in a sense, we kind of curb our horror casts slightly all year in anticipation for October. Yeah, we'll do a I couple. I mean, we'll do a couple, but like, I feel we like... We know, come ho- but Halloween is going to we're going to like, well, do, do four in October. Yeah, we're so going to, yeah. Let's back not, to back let's to not back. shoot our wad too early. Yeah. But I'm always, yeah, it's 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 a, it's a, it's a tough gamble because it's very, you got to be um, heavily disciplined come the October months. You know, you know it's uh, it's like sticking to your diet. You gotta, you're doing it. <laughs> you're getting up early. Well, it's the October resolution. Yeah, you're, um, <laughs> you're 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 having your you're getting up, doing your exercises, and then you're um you're doing you know you're keeping regimented, and uh, this is the first. So does this technically also mean this is the first one of the se- of the season of the of the year? I, it might be according if, to if our schedule of last school year. year, or maybe that was. <laughs> I guess last. I guess, last week's was I our guess, last yeah, year. It's like the second episode of of the year of our year. Yeah, of our, of of our Saturday night movie sleepover year. Yeah, our curriculum post summer sleepovers. Yeah, summer starting the next year. Summer we did our our Greece was our our like end of summer and coming into fall movie, and then we did into our, our anniversary into our druid. Yeah, season. Sam Hain. Yeah, all the different <laughs> the calendar turning with our with our uh, our sun clock. It's now officially autumn. It is officially autumn. It was weird this year. It was it? it uh, I was listening to the radio and it turned autumn at like ten twenty two a.m. They were like at ten twenty two exactly. They knew like at ten twenty one summer. Ten twenty two. Yeah. <laughs> everything just you just clouds just go across the sun and everything. Just, and everything this tone of drones. Yeah, and everything just gets red, and you're like, what's going on here? And then just things start to wilt, even the flowers and plants in your house. But for this very special uh, month of yeah, horror. Of Halloween horror. We're kicking it off. We need to come up with a we need to come up with a uh, like a Saturday night movie sleepover uh, yeah. month of horror. Uh, yeah, and you say it quick like Saturday night movie sleepover month of horror. Will <laughs> no you survive? Said, no one ever said Tina Minute. Yeah, no one ever said Minute. Bring your kids, grave digger. <laughs> Come to Saturday. October, October, October. Yeah. Everyone under five gets a free pen. <laughs> Come on, twenty one year old get to keep a, a large uh, beer cup. Saturday night movie Bring your tickets with you. But yes, so this is a very special episode because one, it is well, a couple of reasons. One is many, actually many reasons. One, it's the first of it's the, the first new of, the, of the new season of our Halloween horror extravaganza. Well, first is the, it's the kind of the first or second of the new season. It's the first of the Halloween extravaganza of horror to circa 2016. Mm-hmm. Three, it's um, 
I don't know what three is, but well, four <laughs> is that it that that it's kicking it off with a near and dear classic, yeah. especially in your well, wheelhouse. It's very. There's two things. So we got to well, figure out what three is. So three <laughs> is that it, it's. Uh, it's the, our fifth John Carpenter. Yeah, movie? no, it's the, he. We've done half his catalog. We're representing. Yet John Carpenter yet again, who was the first one to be inducted into the Sleepover Movie Hall of Fame. Yeah, and the person most uh, represented on the podcast yeah. thus far. Um, great to two of the movies that we did were ones that he produced. Little do we know that there's like a stagehand or a camera guy that's been in every <laughs> single one of our. Well, yeah, that's true. But no, but you're right. For certainly, officially, he's the. Um, we did uh, the thing. The thing. We did uh, Halloween three, season Halloween of three, which he produced. Yeah, Halloween two, Halloween two. That was he, last year's. Which he wrote and produced. That was part of last year's uh, Halloween. Halloween. Well, yeah, that was three two years ago. As you do the sign of the cross. <laughs> <laughs> two years ago was Halloween three, season of which because we like to go backwards. One year ago was Halloween two. Yeah. And then we did we've, we've the done, thing between that. And we've done Big Trouble in Little China. That was one of the first ones we did, too. Yeah. Jeez, we did them back-to-back. We did Big Trouble. And then we did the, th- the th- uh, part three, Season of the Witch. And then we did... Uh, uh, didn't we do another? We almost... There's, there's like one or two we have almost contemplated in doing. Yeah, we've talked about doing them in the past. And we were talking about doing one... In the summer. and During the summer. But then we were like, well, let's wait. And Yeah. I think we were talking about doing one in the summer because... John Carpenter had this because of his music and him touring. He had like this giant resurgence that everybody was talking John Carpenter. Yeah, which we like and to it credit. Was like we were talking John Carpenter like two years. Yeah, <laughs> we like to credit that you kickstarted his his tour because when you talk to him, you're like, "Aren't you going to go tour and do a look into my eyes? You're going to go tour." Well, I wrote a book. Yeah, called "Scored to Death: yeah. Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers." In that book is John Carpenter. Yeah. Now, about six months before, because you interviewed him. Yes, yeah. I interviewed him for the book. Not you like, to my friend John Carpenter. <laughs> Dear John Carpenter, my daddy beats me. <laughs> that's a that's reference a, to that's Maniac. That's a way down the alley, yeah. Maniac 2, yeah. Mr. Robbie. Joe Spinell there. but um, so, uh, And I interviewed him, I'd say about six months before he even announced that his album Lost Souls was coming out. You know we forgot that's to do? That's not Lost Souls, Lost Themes. Uh, welcome to Senate Movie Sleepovers. I'm Dion Baia. And I'm Jay Blake. Okay. And then getting back to Jay Blake having a book called Score to Death, uh, Conversations <laughs> with uh, f- uh, Horrors. Some of Carter's greatest composers. Yes. Uh, go. <laughs> now in, in progress. Meanwhile, on Sound Night Movie Sleepovers. <laughs> so six months before he even announced Lost Themes, yeah. I interview him. Yeah. And I say, John. Yeah. Have you ever thought about doing an album? <laughs> John. Bubby. <laughs> John. My friend, have you ever thought about doing an album? Yeah. Just an album of music. And uh, he said, no. He said, that's too much work. I don't want to do that kind of work anymore. He's taking it easy. He's kind of unofficially retired at that basketball point. Basketball season. It's basketball season. He's, he's a huge And then guy. six months later, he's got an album coming out. So I don't think... That I had anything to do with it, but our mutual friend Dave from Silver Bullet is convinced from our Silver Bullet uh, sidecast, which was last did, year. That was last year's horror. That was the fifth week of the the fifth beetle of the four uh, month of horror last year because we had five weeks and He's, four months. <laughs> Dave's absolutely convinced that I planted the seed. Well, it's funny to think that maybe you know you uh, 
you know, no one's supposed to know. And then you ask, and he's like, geez, he's like, I have to get off the phone. <laughs> Somebody's listening. Yeah, I can't he, talk about he ends up firing his PR department, his firm, and all these other people. And you got you got a whole bunch of people fired because they weren't supposed to leak anything. Little little, they didn't leak anything, but so then he announces that the album's coming out, and I contact him and his his, his people, yeah, his assistant Sean. Who's a very nice guy? I said, Sean, I need to talk to John again because now we've got an album coming out, and he fucking tells me in my interview he doesn't have an album coming out because <laughs> you were because you, you were still getting. I'm still in the middle of writing this book. Yeah, so I said I need to keep it as updated as up to date as I can. Yeah, so then I interview him again about the album. But uh, did you did you pose this question to him? No, no, I don't. Like I know, I know, <laughs> I don't want to take credit for it, but I know it was me. So <laughs> let's talk about me. <laughs> No, uh, so I mean, I talked to him about how it came about, and uh, you'll have to read the book to find out. But uh, he changed his tune. He was like, "Yeah, I've been planning this for years." <laughs> it's a culmination. To do with that he got a new lawyer to t- handle the music end of his business, and she was like, "Do you have any music? Do you want to release an album?" And he's like, "Well, I do have these things I've been doing with my son. It's just for fun." Yeah. Like little jam sessions that they had been recording, and that's how Lost Themes came about. But and how long? When did that come out? That was in uh, maybe like 2016. No, that was 2000 because he's had another album come out since then. So that was probably 2015. Oh, really? He's had two albums since then. He's Lost, not touring Lost on that. Lost Themes f- Two came out. Oh wow! I thought he was still touring on that first one. No, no, he didn't tour for the first one. He when the second one came out is when they introduced the. And, of course, when I interviewed him about the first album, I said, do you ever think, would you tour? He's like, yeah, but they would, you'd have to pay me a lot of money. <laughs> so and then he goes so you happen to know that he's, he's getting paid pretty well for these concerts. And, and for people who don't know, I mean, for people who don't even know that he put an album out or didn't even know he played music, he put, plays music, he put an album out, and he's touring, and he has toured. And his tour has been pretty big because it's now going international, isn't it? Well, yeah, we kind of started off... Uh, He's been playing international dates since the beginning, but it's been kind of like he played a festival in Iceland or something. He played different. He played several Spain. He played early on, so he's kind of been he's been globe trotting. Yeah, doing the tour. He's, well, he's going him back, and Meadowlark. He's going back to uh, he's going back to Europe now. Yeah, and he's going to be. Uh, I think he just played Italy, and he's going back and he's doing the UK. Yeah, in October and November. So he'd already he'd already done that leg once. Yeah, he did Europe, but I don't think he played England um, the first time around. But so the importance of uh, largely the importance of this movie for me that we're doing tonight in the mouth of madness is largely rooted in the in the music. I think that's the first time we've name checked it too. Today we're doing in the mouth of madness. Yeah, nineteen ninety five. Yeah. Uh, Many people consider John Carpenter's last great movie. Yeah, I've heard that. Uh, it's a movie that has been a very special film for me since I saw it in 1995. This was uh, a movie that I saw for the first time during a Saturday night movie sleepover. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Genuinely. I believe it might have been a birthday movie sleepover which means it was around this time okay oh for you my birthday is in september yeah so uh this is a celebrating anniversary for my love of the mouth of madness yeah (coughs) 
excuse me. And uh, I watched this movie and with my friends and absolutely had my mind blown. Yeah. My friends and I at that time were dishing out. We were like the Corman studios. <laughs> Oh. Roger Corman of of, <laughs> of uh, amateur videos of the of the Albany suburbs. Yeah, we were dishing out uh, short VH on VHS uh, m- movies like nobody's business. I wonder how how rampant that was as the late '80s went on. How VHS or camcorders became more affordable and accessible because certainly my parents got a camcorder in like '91. And I just, and you know, it turned into like, you can't touch that until like, you know, I was downstairs with my friends making these movies too yeah, on a Saturday yeah. night or whatever. And to the point like, you know, you know, uh, maybe like, you know, you only got it for an hour or two, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, you know, what it was is I had these, I had big dreams. Yeah, yeah. I had this kid that lived across the street from me and I wanted to make movies with him. This was coming off of uh, a love for Star Wars and the, the, movie magic being shown to us, which is also actually plays into this movie and I'll, I'll get to why, but you, we, we, this, our generation was the first generation to really get like special effects documentaries to really look behind the curtain. Yeah. And so, and I guess also the accessibility you've had since the, probably since the forties being able to like make home movies or so. But yeah, well, yeah, I mean, people so were much, doing eight millimeter, and yeah, super and eight, and getting developed. And you had that in the sixties and seventies with people, you know, with families having it, but then you have now, able to perfectly marry yeah you know and then you don't have to go process it or develop but it then or like after the star wars movies came out there was this documentary called from star wars to jedi the making of a saga and that was a huge influence i mean i think a lot of people our generation that got into uh, a love for cinema and possibly wanted to make cinema i know you and i are from this camp that we originally kind of wanted to be makeup artists yeah you know, we fell in love like you were very big in the savini and i was uh, very into what was going on with Star Wars and Industrial Light and Magic and like Phil Tippett with the miniatures. Oh, <laughs> you know, that was like... And then me the, growing like, up was like Ray Harryhausen and then yeah, yeah. Mighty Mighty Joe Young and King Kong. So like, so like all the him. miniature special effects yeah. and then the makeup effects and uh, that was was a very big thing. And Which so, is a whole art for people nowadays young who that's lost because us growing up were looking at that special effects and, you know, makeup effects as that was a practice kind of... Um, Ho- or not hobby, but a job vocation. Where nowadays people growing up younger like looking at it like computers. You know, they yeah, want to do yeah. like computer effects and stuff. So there's not so much linear as in non-linear now. People are like, I can't wait to grow up and be a freaking you know uh, you know design video games yeah, or that yeah. kind of thing. So it's so back then it was uh, hands on for me. It was the Star Wars documentary that I just mentioned, and there was a friday the 13th part four making of that was screening on cable like hbo or cinemax like in between movies they really tried to push that one i think that's the savini one that's what Corey feldman and all that's like jason the that was that not jason lives at six but that's oh, like the uh, final no, nightmare for me maybe it's or, nightmare on elm street I'm oh no okay. oh. i said Fred. oh I there met, was I one nightmare on elm street i remember that in like nightmare on elm street three they had something all over dream warrior maybe is that dream warrior through part three three was dream warrior where they yeah. had like on HBO, they had like the making of, and they had a music video to tie in and all that. I remember all that scariness. Yeah, yeah. But you there know? was this making of four that would play all the time. And I didn't have cable at my mom's house, but I had it at my dad's house. So that when I was there on weekends and stuff, I would get, 
I would see this and it was like, it was a real treat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, my dad had this thing called the VCR and we read the movies and we've talked about that in previous casts. And But there was this documentary. So I was very into the idea of making uh, movies. Seeing how movies were made was very exciting to me. So I had this plan. I was going to get one of those pixel vision things where you put in like a cassette, like a regular audio cassette tape. Remember that? There was, there was this camcorder out at the time for kids. Yeah. Where you would put an audio cassette tape yeah. in it and it would record... And then there'd be this little monitor that was like a, a match. It was like a match book yeah. <laughs> sized monitor. You know, and you could. And I thought this was like the coolest thing, and I wanted it, and I wanted to get it, and I wanted to make these movies with my kid, with my friend that was across the street. But I didn't want to be in them. Like I wanted to direct him in like a like sci-fi space epic. Oh, so you're already being like the auteur. Yeah, you know. And so I asked for this thing, and I didn't get it. Yeah, and you freaking at a tangent and then <laughs> no but then it was like it, a year later my mom gets me like a really nice camcorder and not ones with like those little tapes like full yeah three yeah. quarter inch whatever whatever the size was yeah. VHS we all have back problems thing. now you, because of that yeah thing. you put it on your shoulder yeah. she gets this for me a year later but a year later my friend moves away no so I have this camcorder yeah. And my mom is pissed that I'm not using it. Yeah. I spent all this money. <laughs> you wanted it. I said, well, that was last year I wanted it. That was two weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I, you got to go out and do nature documentaries. So I had this thing, and I didn't know what to do with it. So years later, let's speed this story up. I meet, I had become I had new friends, uh, junior high or whatever. Yeah. And I, lo and behold, they show me that they made this movie. I think they made one movie without me. Yeah. It was like they all lived in the same neighborhood. I was the new guy. And they showed me that they had made this movie. And they're like, yeah, we want to make more, but my dad won't let me use the camcorder again. Or, you know, like we have, it's always like whether my parents come in. I'm like, I have a fucking camcorder. Yeah. I so have all been this- using. <laughs> so I'm like, let's go back to my house, get the camcorder. So lo and behold, lo and behold, they had this production company named Brad New Hoke or Brad New, Brad New Hokey. Yeah, which was like all their last names kind of combined into one, and so my name my name's not in there because I came in late. Yeah, but all of a sudden, Brad Uhoki Studios yeah, is alive and running. <laughs> and it, it became minute, a full studio system. The minute my camcorder comes into, into play, we're churning out movies. I remember when we were in college, we went to college with uh, many people. One of them was this guy named John, and he was a, he made lists. Yeah, he did. He liked to make lists of things. Yeah, and. Uh, some of the people we went to school with were fascinated by the fact that I made. I mean, we all made movies, but yeah. they were fascinated by like the sheer amount of output. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he at one point asked me to make a. He wanted to. He was trying to make a list of all the movies we made, and we got to like sixty. And I was like, I can't. I, there's more, but I can't remember the titles. Like we were making so many. At some point, like years later, I felt I came across a VHS tape. I popped it in, and I was watching a movie where I was the star of the movie. I never, even, I didn't even remember making it. Wow, that it was like totally. Do you still have any of these? <laughs> yeah, they're probably in a box at my mom's house. I mean, I definitely have like compilation tapes. Yeah, but the original tapes, I, they're probably somewhere. I definitely didn't throw them. Yeah, out. it get a little weird with him too because then he started taking your your yeah your, your home movies. I'm like, where's your tape? <laughs> and he had it. Yeah, like, well, he was <laughs> he was working on a he was writing a script for a sequel to one of my movies. Yeah, oh, very odd, very ambitious, <laughs> very odd. And I was like, well, the point of the movies is that there is no script. Yeah, we had a very basic idea, and then we went improv. Yeah, I that. think that was always the. For people doing that kind of thing when we were little, that was the whole thing. Like my similar thing was with, I remember a very young age, I get that Fisher Price cassette radio player. Yeah, yeah. With, and I remember the tape you'd get 
the side one was them explaining you this is a cassette player and then like we'll show you how to make a radio play here's how to make crackling yeah. fire with tinfoil and then they show you all these things you could do and then side two was blank so you could make your own radio show and that was my first entry yeah, yeah. and well, then i we, used to do like little radio plays with, yeah uh, with all things and you know with, then you tape recorder and then come like uh i guess my, natural progression yeah my parents then got a video uh, a, a visa a, a camcorder like in maybe the late 80s early 90s and then me being a huge at that time saturday night live fan my friends and I started making Saturday Night Live kind yeah, of like yeah. parody. So we we went the road of like doing com- comedic parody, yeah. you know, and then you we went were straight m- drama. And <laughs> yeah, we were, were doing genre films. <laughs> <laughs> you were like the canon, right? The first one I did, well, the first one I made with them was called To Catch a Ninja. Yeah. And it was about a bounty. Very, very ch- uh, Chuck Norris <laughs> canon. <like, laughs> it was very much about like a bounty hunter trying to catch a ninja, hence the title. Yeah. Uh, second movie was called Hitman. Yeah. Hit Men. Mm. And then, you know, this was the era of uh, Pulp Fiction and uh, kind of this resurgence of heist movies and, uh, in a way, organized crime movies. And we were young. Ad- we were becoming, you know, we were teenagers added, entering our young adulthood, or at least, you know, trying to. And so we were, very, we were getting very into, much into the movies of, like, Martin Scorsese and stuff. So a lot of the movies took on a very, like, crime drama uh feel to them you know and so but 1995 september of 19 maybe i guess maybe it was september of 1996 or september 95 depending on when this movie came out i don't remember what month this uh, released in february 95 all right so september of 95 yeah this is like a new release on and video yeah at captain video yeah <laughs> nice I've been or, ban- video. or banana video depending yeah, on the which one area. <laughs> depending on which one of us rented it uh I watched this movie, and the minute this movie ended, we made our first horror movie. It was all like crime drama. So you saw that. it with them, or no? You just yeah. called kids. Called no, them no. Dudes. We watched it. Uh, the three of watched it, and then Chuck came later. He had like a he had something he couldn't come right away. So we watched it without him. He came, but he had seen it before, and it really freaked him out. Yeah, this movie was like really made an impact on him. Uh, so he came and like we were so ex- you know we were so blown away by this movie that we're like we got to make a horror movie. So we made this horror movie. My parents are asleep upstairs. We have the run of the downstairs, and not a basement. We didn't have a made over basement. It's just like the first floor. Of the oh house. yeah, yeah. Yours was unfinished. <laughs> and uh, it's dicey because I used to make mine in the finished basement downstairs, and they'd still hear us a yeah, level yeah. removed. Yeah, you know. And then so like you guys doing it just like you know with them right up the stairs. <laughs> You know, and back then, you know, there was no editing software. No, we just, you know, you would, was, no, you didn't, I don't, I never even, it never even occurred to me to edit the damn thing. We just, you, you edit no, in camera. You, you stop, stop it. You, you edit, stop it. You point the terrible, camera at something yeah. else. <laughs> you play. And then you realize you, you know, every time you stop, you lose the, you, you lose the tail and the head of like the next, the yeah, next yeah. take and so the last the time. It just right. And we had gotten so good at timing, like the roll in, you yeah. know, like the, as the tape ramps up that we could play a piece of music. And through hand signals, someone would pause the music as we pause the tape and then pause it and unpause the music and the tape at the same time where we could be seamless like 85 to 90 percent of the time. That's how good we got at it. So uh, we make a horror movie. We don't have any horror music. Yeah. So what do we do in the background playing on the TV is the soundtrack of this movie the end credit sequence, we just keep playing it over and over again in the background of this horror movie. 
And that's the soundtrack. Yeah. That's the score to yeah. this horror movie is the end credit music. <laughs> in the Mouth of Madness. In the Mouth of Madness. So thus begins a completely new chapter of uh, Jay Blake's life. Yeah. In the Mouth of Madness becomes the first horror movie score that I purchase. Yeah. I think that was the first one then either a best of John Carpenter soundtrack or the Halloween score was the second one. And uh, this oh, was, so they already had something out like a best of like a yeah compilation. yeah it was a couple just the themes yeah for a couple of things for a few things and uh, I don't th- I don't even know if they were done by him but it was like you know might yeah. have been some studio A band yeah, yeah <laughs> for, for the music of I had that I went John I got like a, I got like the, the themes of Clint Eastwood's films and I got them like these don't sound anything like them and it's like you realize it's, it's close a, maybe yeah, I guess. Um, and then I just started to fall in love with horror movies. We started renting horror movies every Friday, me and my friend Pete, and uh, in becoming being one of those, being an obsessive compulsive collector type, I got it in the mouth of madness. Fell in love with John Carpenter. Had to discover everything that John Carpenter did. Realized that John Carpenter directed many a movie that I felt that I that were very important parts of my upbringing, like They Live, Big Trouble in Little China, Escape from New York. The Thing was a movie that I remembered, and we talk a lot about. Uh, how Dion reintroduced that movie to me and when we were in college. And so In the Mouth of Madness started the spiral of a love for John Carpenter, kind of a new love for horror. Um, I had seen Prince of Darkness was a big movie for me and my friends before that, and I was like, oh, and he did that movie too? Yeah. And uh, then when I got into college... Memoirs of Invisible Man? That's <laughs> around that time. <laughs> I love that movie. Uh when I got into college, I got it more into the Italian horror movies. I fell in love with horror movie music even more. But John Carpenter, and specifically this score, was the beginning of a love for horror music that basically led to the creation of Score to Death, the book that I wrote yeah. many years later, 20 years later or whatever. Uh, more, 30 years later, whatever it is. No, 20 years later. Yeah. And uh, so th- that's like the importance of this movie to me is that it put me on a path that has really led me to uh, at this point my most uh my biggest i'd say professional accomplishment which is the completion of this book and john carpenter's in the book we talk a little bit about the score um and so this movie's always been very special to me um he toured i saw him uh, in july in new york and 2016 of 2016 <clears throat> and he towards the end of the show he plays the theme to this movie uh and right in the middle and even if you listen to it on the soundtrack there's like this little breakdown part where it just gets like very ethereal and it's just like kind of keyboard tones and stuff it goes it stops from the rock and theme and it becomes like this weird scary ethereal part so they kind of replicate this in the live show wow but when he does it when they do it in the live show you know carpenter does very little in the live show i mean he plays but it's really the surrounding band is the ones that are really playing everything. You know, he's he's playing some of the main melodies and stuff, but he's actually playing very little throughout the whole show. So when this happens in the show, the band, everybody steps back. The band steps behind him. The lights kind of go out. There's just this spotlight on Carpenter. Yeah. And he just he plays this ethereal part by himself. It's the only time in the show he plays. And he stands like at front, like in a keyboard. Yeah, he's playing in the the center, kind of in the front, uh, bookended by his son and his godson throughout the whole show. 
playing keyboard and guitar respectively. And, uh, but in this part, they step back. It's just Carpenter playing. And he stands with the and keyboard. This, yeah. yeah, and they stand behind him. And it's like, it's one, it's the part of the show. It's very moving in that it's, it's the part of the show where it's like, okay, we're giving his, like, you're seeing the moment, like his moment. It's his moment in the show. They're stepping back, you know, acknowledging that he's, that he's the creative force behind this music. And he starts playing this stuff, and I have to be honest with you, like I cried. Yeah. Like I got really overwhelmed with emotion at this part of the show. It was one that it's a very, I think it's a very uh, moving part of the show in general. And two, it was like the importance of that music to me, um, how it led to the book, how he and and specifically that music kind of changed my life, and then the. Uh, the sense of accomplishment that I felt, the pride I felt in actually completing the book. It's like everything. It's just kind of like over, like welled up in me. And I, I got, I got like all teary eyed. And, uh, it was like, it was, and I talk a lot about the importance of this music in the, in the introduction to the book, but it was in that moment after the book's been released that like, I realized how important this music and this movie was to me. So I'm really thrilled that we're talking about this movie. Because this really was a, a game changer for me. Yeah. It really did kind of like put me on a path that kind of really did change my life. 20 and, years later. And might be, you know, a contributing factor of why I even know you. I mean, this might have been a movie, if I really examined it, it could have been one of the reasons why I decided to go to film school or whatever. Like, it really was a, a big movie for me. All um, right. Good night, everybody. Now, this is coming off of some movies that were not necessarily considered... Uh, hits for him you know um i don't think prince of darkness was a big financial success for him and um memoirs of an invisible man certainly wasn't and i can't remember he does this and to uh that sh- movie body but that show body Bags. oh was? body bags is before this that's right that was an experiment of trying to do like a, a television anthology yeah thing that uh didn't necessarily work out and then and they were uh, village of the damned is right around this time although i think it might be after this. it's after yeah, this but i think it's right after this but it's at a point in carpenter's career where i think feel like he's not really considered like quote unquote the man anymore you know but he's still getting those big budgets you know he's still like I, for me i feel like he's still up there like he's not he hasn't lost any credibility but he's still like you know studios believe him with, enough to give him like but with you know, body bags and in, and and Memoirs of an Invisible Man and stuff, I feel like this movie comes out. I, I remember that being such ahead of its time, that Memoirs of an Invisible Man, like, like the CGI. I mean, like, yeah. you know, I don't know where it stands, like, in the in the whole big scheme of things, but I remember, like, you know, if you have Jurassic Park and Terminator 2, but then you have that stuff, and that yeah. was all, like, you know, the building disappearing or, like, Chevy Chase being, like, you know, invisible and him drinking stuff, and you could see it. That was all, like, cutting edge, and Sam Neill's the bad guy in that. Yeah, and Sam it was Neill's all very, intro- like... Kind of its introduction to you know, and, and I wonder. It, I wonder if that's also casting too, because I remember like when I worked at a video store in the late '90s, uh, that movie would be in the comedy section, and I get so mad. I'm like, this is just because Chevy Chase is in it and on the cover. This is not a comedy. Well, it also has a you very. <laughs> we're gonna get on a tangent of <laughs> but it also has like a, a tone that is very reminiscent. Uh, it's stylized in that it's very reminiscent of an older generation of movie, like yeah. uh, Hollywood classic a film noir type thing yeah it's totally so it's flashback a, right so and it's like, got a tone that i don't think a modern audience especially of today 
you know, less so in, uh, you know, more people I think would get it in, in, in the mid nineties, but, um, that isn't, you know, it's almost tongue in cheek, but not in a comedic kind of way. Yeah. So I think people just didn't really know what to make of it. And then to cast Chevy Chase and, and it was like really his baby. I think Chevy Chase is the one I think that brought that movie to, he wanted to do it and that's how that movie got made. Um, but I think people didn't, you know, it was like when Bill Murray tried to do that serious movie, was it River's Edge or something? He tried to, Bill Murray yeah. tried to do a serious movie. Yeah, right after he did uh, Ghostbusters. And people just didn't know. It was like they couldn't watch Bill Murray yeah. and not laugh. <laughs> I don't remember if, it, <laughs> and so yeah, it, I don't remember if it was a, if it was a failure of Memoir of the Invisible Man, but I remember seeing it, loving it, and then like, you know, holding it, you know, like that was, I but I think for a lot of fans in the Mouth of Madness marked like a return yeah. of the master. Um, my buddy Dave, who gets talked about, or even mentioned earlier in this podcast, uh, he and I are friends because of a mutual love for John Carpenter. That's how we basically met. And he tells me he remembers seeing In the Mouth of Madness in the theater, and when that opening credit sequence starts with like the making of the books and the music, yeah. he's like he stood up and started cheering. It was just like so fucking because like, at the time he was yeah, a Carpenter he was fan. like yeah he yeah. was at the biggest uh, you know of his Carpenter. Love. It wasn't like a trance where he'd like this movie you know like that no, you know it was that. like that was his big Carpenter you know moment right? moment was like you know. He 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 fell in love with Carpenter before I did, and we didn't. I didn't meet him till years later when we were in college. But um, and that culminated with the two of you going to see Carpenter one of the. Because you, how he, many shows did you end up seeing? With? I saw him twice. And yeah, I, and I'm planning on seeing him on Halloween. Yeah, overseas in London. You know? Yeah, that's pretty crazy. And uh, you guys saw him in DC. You saw him in New York, which I was supposed to go to. With yeah, you, but I had to travel. You, for we, the plan was that we were going to go see that <sighs> one together. I was so excited, and then I had to travel for the RNC with my job, so I had to leave. Like the, it was not even like I was working. It was just like that was the travel day. Yeah, I had to get on a plane, fly to Cleveland the night he was playing, and I was like, oh, and then. Then you saw him in D.C. like later on. And then the summer. like the next week, I saw him in D.C. with Dave because yeah. I had to see him because that was Dave. the Garden, the first one. It, w- right? it was uh, it was a theater called the Nikon Theater, maybe PlayStation Theater in Times Square. Oh, okay. Oh, that, maybe that's the old Nikon. I saw yeah, the post the old the Nikon. Nikon. It used yeah, to be yeah. called the Nikon Theater. Now it's called the PlayStation. Theater. Yeah. And uh, I had to see him with Dave because you know, of course. <clears throat> Dave's, that's, like I said, that's how me and Dave became friends. Dave's love for John Carpenter is maybe the only one that rivals mine. Yeah, and he's living down there. Uh, and the he DC lives in area. D.C., so I was like, I'm coming down. We're going to go see John Carpenter. Uh, but um, And that, that was like religious experiences for both of you. Usually, oh, yeah, yeah. You know? But for him, in the Mouth of Madness, for him, he's one of those guys where, like, oh, he's back. You know, he was all excited when he when that movie started, and it was like... It was like John Carpenter was like, you know, that opening of that movie with that piece of music, which is inspired by Enter Sandman, because they used Enter Sandman by Metallica as a piece of temp music to cut the temporary music as they're doing the rough cut, just to have music before they score it. The editor put this in, and it just works so well. And Carpenter's like, oh, "Yeah, we, well, I can do something kind of like that for it because it works. It fucking it it's amazing once you know that little secret that like this sounds so much like even like the, you know, the guitar to the dun, dun, you know, like I almost <laughs> like you know, say your prayers and so on. Don't forget my tattoo or whatever. So I'd almost like to be cool if they had a little remix yeah like or if they just had like up. yeah if you had like a like the angle button on your dvd player to play that soundtrack it's a one don't forget you know sleep with one eye you see like the print and so <laughs> I, but I think like 
Carpenter using something that fucking intense and yeah. so rocking. It well, really, I guess he said. I think it hit, it's to him. It's like, all right, yeah, like I am fucking back. Like you guys, you guys been giving me shit. <laughs> yeah. Now you're in for it. And I mean, not to get too far ahead, but I guess he said like he saw he, he saw like a screening with the temp music and like he saw people bobbing their heads. And like, all right, yeah, this is good. This is starting. So maybe yeah. I need. He wanted to keep that. Um, feeling going, you know, that kind of in- intensity at the beginning. And uh, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, so I think this movie in a lot of ways, uh, you know, special to me for many reasons, but I think special to long-time Carpenter fans as being kind of like, I think, Carpenter's answers to criticism and and, and Carpenter really returning back to form. Yeah. Um, and it, it's also a movie that, concludes what he and his fans consider the apocalypse his apocalypse trilogy because it's very much about like the end of things yeah um it was written by uh michael deluca who is a a producer and a writer for horror fans he also wrote freddy's dead the final uh the final nightmare which i think i presented dion with a pair of Freddy's Dead glasses earlier in the summer. <laughs> you did. You presented them to me, I think, in the summer rental cast because you were going through um, your box of stuff at your um, mother's house upstate, and she was like, you know, trying to downsize. So you were bringing stuff back. So and uh, so uh, it's done by for New, by New Line Cinema, who also did Nightmare on Elm Street, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, um, produced by his wife, Sam, uh, John Carpenter's wife, Sandy King. Now uh, Deluca really. He wrote this in the 80s, and he had been trying to get Carpenter to direct it since like 88, 87, 88 or something like that. And Carpenter just wasn't feeling it. Um, he just didn't know how to do it, is, is how he explains it. It was like it was a very, it was a, it's kind of an odd idea, and he just didn't really know how to do it. So um, Carpenter originally passed, and uh, not the odd couple, Tony Randall, but a director named Tony Randall. Yeah. Who, who, it was like uh, Tony Randall? <laughs> <laughs> who directed uh, Hellraiser 2 Hellbound and uh, uh, gets a little bit of a mention in... Which the, a lot of people like the Hellraiser 2. Hellraiser 2 is good. I mean, it's not... It's very different than the first one. Yeah. Um, has a very different feel, but it, it's it's much bigger. Uh, Christopher Young's score for Hellraiser 2 is fucking awesome. Yeah. Um, I think it's my wife's favorite Hellraiser. She's a big Hellraiser fan. Yeah. It's, Hellraiser a fun, it's definitely a fun... It's more fun. Like Hellraiser is pretty tough. It's a hard movie. I yeah. mean, it's very dark. Even Cage's flat. Hellraiser two takes a kind of uh, more in a, an adventure uh, direction. Uh, so Tony Randall was attached for a while, and then uh, after him, Mary Lambert, who had directed Pet Cemetery two, she was connected for a while. And then eventually it comes back, and Carpenter had thought about it, and Carpenter's like, you know what? I think I could do this. Carpenter had always had a love for H.P. Lovecraft. Since he was a boy, his dad bought him a anthology book of of horror stories that had all kinds of stories from different horror writers, and one of them was Lovecraft. And this movie is very much an homage to the works of H.P. Lovecraft. Very much so. Even the title is a bit of an homage to the H.P. Lovecraft story at the Mountains of Madness. Yeah, which is a great story about. Should, should we talk a little about H.P. Lovecraft and like his uh, his his little? Uh, if you want, he's a fascinating guy and could warrant. His own full episode. It's sad because uh, for he, sure. He, I mean, he was very. He was a troubled guy. Uh, born had a lot of issues with women in terms of uh, like awkwardness, yeah, and awkwardness, like, in, in, intimacy. And he was like born. In, he he was born uh, maybe before the turn of the century in uh, uh, Providence, Rhode Island, and he kind of grew up kind of uh, 
basically kind of sheltered, living with his mother at the time. And uh, he never really went out. He was kind of sheltered. He didn't really have a job, didn't really get a vocation. I think he was maybe homeschooled. He's one of those people that was very uh, awkward in the sense of that he was just not comfortable. Yeah. With being with other, like being around under pe- other yeah, people. Yeah, you get like almost like anxieties and, and stuff with it. And then so because of that, that kind of like deterred him going out. He didn't need to get a job because he didn't, he, you know, his family had like an inheritance or his family was a little independently wealthy. And then uh, his mother ended up passing away, and uh, he realized he didn't really have a vocation. He ended up meeting his uh, his wife, a woman who became his wife. He moved to Brooklyn, and uh, he realized then he didn't really he couldn't really get a job. Uh, he tried his hand at writing. His wife moved away, and like went to Cleveland and other maybe Cincinnati for work, and he got stuck in Brooklyn. And he was very unhappy about where he lived, what was going on, the climate around him, because I think he went around from like. He lived in Red Hook at a time and all that. And he was writing these stories and he started pitching them. And he also started these very famous correspondence with authors that then became very famous. We talked about um, Robert E. Howard, who was the man who ended up committing suicide, who created the Conan um, series, which I think we talked about maybe in the Tarzan uh, series. But he he started these very legendary correspondence with these people. Well, this was a time where... <clears throat> this is the, the beginning me. of the 20th century. Like, uh, um, but this was a time where short stories were being published in magazines, and there was this whole community of, of yeah. writers. And these, uh, yeah, the, it was kind of like the dime store novels were going away. You had like Edgar Allan Poe at the time, who not only did he invent the first kind of like uh, detective story, like that procedural, procedural, procedural uh, detective story. That then Arthur Conan Doyle kind of went on. Uh, he did a lot of horror, so he was kind of known. And then there was another man, the um, Lord Daramont, or I forget the gentleman's yeah. name. And then kind of like H.P. Lovecraft kind of picks up on that, doing these yeah. stories. But then, funny enough, but none of like, them... Yeah, but it was like this was an era of like these these stories were that were being published like science fiction was becoming uh, yeah. more of a thing. And with, he was kind um, of lumped into that, even though he was working with a very different kind H- of palette. Then. Yeah, H.G. Wells was very big at the time, and uh, Jules Verne's was kind of still uh, in vogue. So you have a lot of these because of the Industrial Revolution, you know, science and technology, and that's, that science fiction is very, like, avant-garde or, or in, I, I guess, in vogue. And then he's doing these different atmospheric, almost gothic, but not so much gothic, more like... Uh, very forward-thinking stories that deal with like very um, like meta subjects, and uh, this is where you get a lot of these themes here that 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 kind of translate into in the mouth of madness. Where you know a lot of his he has a lot of similar themes like where you see here where um, you know protagonists who are not in control of their own actions. Uh, there's some sort of forbidden knowledge that they stumble upon, and because of that, they eventually learn, and it either drives them mad, drives the world mad, or, or it's, yeah. their, it's the character's demise. Uh, and he was also uh, uh, a big fan of like astronomy and uh, scientific stuff, like biology, astronomy, uh, um, physics. And at the same time, he was growing up in the Roaring Twenties, and since that was such a celebrational time for America and for culture before the Depression hit, he kind of didn't at all fit into that. So he kind of looked at that almost, he kind of looked down, I guess, think on like kind of civilization and saw like, you know, this is, 
he can kind of see or he would forecast this is where the world's kind of going to go. Everyone's going to, it's going to turn into like a, I guess what people kind of think of today, which is yeah. funny how everything repeats themselves. Like the, the de- over decadence of people in society. Yeah, well, people thought about that about the 70s. Yeah, or it's the just. The disco era. And then people thought about that with the, with the 80s. The, you know, with the, like the cocaine and the corporate. Everything is kind of getting. So it's like every ahead of themselves has its own version of that. Yeah, and he saw it kind of like. Uh, he saw a lot of these elements and, you know, with, and then with, especially with the leaps and bounds in technology as well as, um, so he writes a lot of short stories, a lot of them. And he had a, he was very, um, uh, he was very timid. And so he would say, submit a story to a short, uh, a short story to a publisher. And if the publisher, for some reason denied him, uh, he would never try to re- try to resubmit it to another magazine. He just shelve it. And what he ended up getting notoriety because what he was reading, he had a dispute with somebody about a series of articles that they had written. So he wrote in like to like the uh, to the editorial page and started this back and forth. And because of that, some like publishing company like, hey, this guy's pretty good how he writes. Yeah. And so they contacted, hey, would you ever think about? Do you have anything on your own? So he eventually started pushing out stuff. And it's kind of sad where. Uh, his, I think, doesn't his, does his wife eventually die? His wife takes ill, I think, and dies. And yeah, then his mother dies. As, there's actually a great, you can find it. There's, you know, if you listen to things on, uh, if you do like internet searches for BBC radio yeah, uh, documentaries, they actually do like really great music related documentaries and stuff, but you can find great BBC radio documentaries. And there's a great one about Lovecraft. Yeah. Um, and so like, I've listened to those kinds of things, but, uh, I have to admit that I'm not as up to snuff on, on the Lovecraft stuff as I, as I probably should be. It's just, a, it's a sad thing. Cause I think he only died like in his like 37 or something like, or something. He was fairly young or no, maybe he was 46. Um, he, he, he was born in 1890 died March 15th, 1937 at age 46. But, uh, he, uh, basically, just uh, he, he he really can't. He's 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 poor, and he he moves back up to like I think Providence, and he he ends up uh, passing away up there, and uh, everything I think ends up he because of these correspondence he has with all these different people who be, end up becoming legendary writers and stuff. Uh, they help further the mystique uh, that he he put out there with all these different little things like the. Um, the Elder Gods and all these yeah, different the forms. The Old Ones and Cthulhu is a thing that's becoming very big right now. Yeah. With like the tentacle-faced monsters and yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's, it's like these a, interdimensional It's all kind of a thing. thing. You know, and he was very, like we said, he was he was very against like the, the, uh, the he was into the fall of civilization and, the you know, the, the, he thought the races were doomed because of like materialistic and like uh, the very mechanicalistic parts of the universe and um, him being an astronomer, astronomer at the time. Uh, when he wrote the At the Mountains of Madness story, um, they had just discovered, which is basically a uh, uh, really an undiscovered country, was Antarctica at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know Edgar Allan Poe had written a, st- a short story about Ant- Antarctica, but uh, th- we had just sent people up there to um, to flesh out and um, to, 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 this, to, to find places in Antarctica. So that was kind of still like... like doesn't Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, I think, bookend up in, in, yeah, in the North to Pole, tell, I think. Yeah, it's hard because the South Pole, right? Yeah, so I think it was maybe up north is where... But um, yeah, the, the Poles were. Were very... Was a, was a land of mystery. Yeah, because people, <laughs> you know, who knows what was going on up there and all. So it was right around the time when um, you had um, the geologist um, uh, 
uh, I forget the gentleman's name who discovered Antarctica. Um, that's when he sets his story about at the mountains of madness in there. And, and at the mountains of madness is just a story about this research team. And I think it's told in flashback where they go up, uh, to, to, to explore, they find these, uh, ruins of the civilization of these people. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, they're, they're it's much like John Carpenter's the thing or, or, or yeah. you know, where they're, they're end up getting killed off and, um, it ends up being that it, they're reawakening these the these creatures up there, and then it's kind of like the fall of civilization. It's almost like a warning: don't go up there. Who knows? You know, they could be this old alien technology, very yeah, much like yeah. the uh, the Prometheus movie, like those elder gods. And that's I, what kind of like those. And I actually plot. think Guillermo del Toro's been oh, developing a a, 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 a a movie of at the Mountains of Madness. It seems for like a long a, time. yeah. A lot of people have been they they wrote a script. And, and it never really went anywhere. Because I think a lot of Lovecraft fans, or at least casual Lovecraft fans, I mean, I don't know about real diehard fans, but I think a lot of people actually, even though this isn't based on any specific Lovecraft story, in a lot of ways, I think people consider this like the most successful Lovecraft film. This is in the mountain, uh, in, in, in the, the mouth, mouth of madness. madness. Well, it certainly plays in that they, they kind of keep this in as part of the... Uh, the property because it it furthers the ideas and you kind of and there's a lot of references to it um it was the expedition of richard uh, e bird in 1920 to 1930 that uh in, in in Antarctica, and he just before he wrote the novella uh in the mountain of madness and um th- that was a, and he also had an aversion to cold which is a very funny thing he hated the cold weather he and he always like you know uh thought of that being like a uh like a, a nasty thing as well. So uh, it's interesting, much like we see with with uh, Howard Hawks as the thing for another world, or even the most recently with that Prometheus, the idea of going up to someplace, discovering this ancient technology or whatever, and then unleashing for whatever reason by accident or on purpose, either yeah. uh, you know evil from another world or alien technology. It's never really clear, and then that's kind of, and then it kind of runs amok and it's almost like you're unleashing it and it's going to destroy the world and that's kind of the, the the short story at the mountain of madness and then he ends up dying like we said and then his his followers or his his i guess fans but also the people who are big name who become big name authors end up helping get the put the rest of his stories that he that never really got published or that got published once or twice back out there and in, in like in book form and they also help to further the uh what's the name of the the, the mythos the uh, the big monster the, the cthulhu the cthulhu and they also start writing the cthulhu mythos they add to it so you start getting it's not f- i say fan material but yeah. you start getting other you know elements so it kind of furthers it and then they or even like you have authors referencing it so it's almost like shared universes oh, yeah. i mean it's kind of you know and then reference the things like Arkham Asylum and Batman, is, for instance, is, 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 a, yeah. is a nod to. And what he sets a lot of his, uh, aside from we're talking about this at the Mountain of Madness, which takes place up in Antarctica, a lot of his short stories, which are kind of like semi gothic horror that lead to like these like uh, other worlds or you know stumbling into like other civilizations or opening portals. It also reminds me a lot of The Mist. By Stephen yeah. King, I think in a lot of ways the mist might be like King's uh, nod to H.P. Lovecraft, very Lovecraft. much so. And, it, and his long before you have King setting stuff in like Castle Rock or up in Maine, where King or Connecticut, where King lived, you have H.P. Lovecraft who lived in Providence. So he set a lot of things in New Hampshire yeah. or in New England in fictional towns, like you said, this Arkham or uh, Knob's End. You know all these. Uh, 
yeah. different places that were, you know, or, or real places. And then, you know, and that was the idea of, you know, this the, people's paranoia, like the rats in the walls or, you yeah, know, these yeah. very great stories that at the time, you know, we, I think, again, we talked about this in the uh, Tarzan cast. He's up there with a lot of serialists like Edgar I. Rice Burroughs just because even though, you know, the serial people were doing like Ro Ro Robert E. Howard doing something completely different. Uh, Lovecraft was doing stuff that no one had ever seen well, that's before. The thing. He was, he was like uh, paving new ground where um, other people, you know, at the time were not doing, you know. I mean, it's very, it's becoming harder and harder to come across originality. Yeah. Especially and, in this day and age. Yeah. I mean, I think, <clears throat> and I think it's only inevitable. I mean, you think of like, I think talk about music, for instance. You know, music maybe you could argue music's not as good as it used to be, blah blah blah. But you have to take into account, like music, for instance. There's only X amount of notes. Yeah. You know, and every time somebody writes a song, which happens every day, hundreds of people, thousands of people, however many people around the world are always are writing new songs every day. Those notes can only be configured in so many possibilities and for yeah. so many configurations. <laughs> so eventually, it's like we're gonna eventually run out of yeah different original. Kind of ways to configure those to put those notes like to mathematical make it, to make you, a new melody you know, yeah. you know at, 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 mathematically at some point every c possible combination of those notes will be yeah. taken up and so and they you, say that about they said about literature though or i was just saying thing. you can take that and put that into you any know, kind of real art they, form. there's they only say, so many yeah different ideas so when you come across uh and, you know, you, there's also theories like there's only X amount of stories and the only way originality is like how you tell them. Yeah. But you come across something like uh, Lovecraft and people, some people, can, you know, make a case that like his, the way he wrote, uh, it was a style and some people knock him for that style and the way he uses words and stuff. But um, conceptually... He's he's out there. Yeah, he's doing shit that like nobody. Had you never thought of. You never. I mean, you think about like in the teens or twenties, right? Reading or early thirties, reading stories about like ancient astronauts from other worlds that are here, or you're opening up, you know, a portal. Like you're, you know, you're in like a, you know, a New England manor house, and you're opening a portal to a different dimension, or there's, you know, beings in the walls that aren't, you know, it, it is an, and it's still so much so like the the really early days of horror were you know Frankenstein and Dracula are relatively new yeah. you know you haven't really gotten into talkie films yet so you haven't really been able to exploit things like the mummy or wolfman or all these other things that we see happening yeah. in, in the mid 20th century so for him to be doing these things in this way um the fantasy writer we were trying to think of is uh Lord Dunsey uh, that he was influenced by. So that's why you have a lot of people, especially people of his um, elk who were writers at the time who he started these correspondence with who were very much impressed. Yeah. And then when he ends up passing away in 1937, uh, you have, you know, he's left all this material that, they, that ends up getting put out. And you have people certainly like uh, Robert Block who wrote Psycho was someone he, he, you know, corresponded with. But you have people like Stephen King and all these younger people who come up in it, like Richard Matheson, who were just so oh, yeah, I mean, when you look at, like, you know, course, by when, him. When you look at sci-fi, you have, uh, you know, Wells and... Jules Verne. Verne. And, I mean, you have, like, the big ones. And then you get into the 20th century, and then you have the Philip K. Dicks and the... Uh, uh, Arthur Clark, C. Clarke. Yeah, and the uh, uh, Asmanoff or whatever. Yeah, Isaac Asmanoff. Yeah. yeah, so you start getting... But, like, when you go into... When you get into horror, it seems like... 
it's a little bit of smaller net, and you have, you know, Poe, you have your Poe. Yeah, you have, yeah, um, and you have like more James, con- and you have and more, con- and more contemporary, you have your King and your Clive Barker. But, you know, within like that, that Mount Rushmore of horror f- literary fiction, like Lovecraft. It's hard I don't think anybody would argue it. Yeah, that. because back then, especially like you said, you know, people weren't writing it so much unless you were hugely successful. Like, uh, you know, Edgar, uh, uh, Edgar Allan Poe was, or even like Arthur C. Uh, 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 Arthur Conan Doyle. Like, you weren't writing it for novel form. You were writing short stories. So a lot of times you get people back then who were, you know, people say these are great stories. These are like novellas or shorts that were appearing in trades, like yeah. magazines or... And of course you had Bram Stoker yeah. and Mary Shelley, but... Well, the, yeah, those those were <laughs> novel form. But you have a lot, of, a lot of... So you have a lot of these uh, horror writers who maybe weren't as prolific in that genre because maybe they were they were writing their different they were cross pollinating where they were writing for this genre that genre so they weren't exclusively writing say for a said genre because yeah. pu- they were at the end of the day they wanted to be published yeah. so if they're writing horror and it's not getting published they may change and start writing something else that's going to get published for whatever reason if they're doing it for commercial reasons or for passion reasons so but in a lot really of ways hard. it didn't feel like Lovecraft was writing no, to, in a way he wasn't writing. Was like he is, in a way. I was thinking, you know, it's funny. I had this. He's trying conce- to get those demons out. I had this concept, and I think I pitched it to you at one point for like a possible graphic novel that involved H.P. Lovecraft, and um, not to go into like what the plot was or anything, but conceptually, it was very much. I was, I was very much subconsciously influenced by Sutter Kane. This idea of, and you can, you know, you almost feel like this with Lovecraft because of this world that he created. Yeah, this like very cohesive, singular world that he created with the Cthulhu and stuff. You almost feel like it was like he was exercising some kind of demon. Yeah, he knew something we didn't know. And that's always the most frightening aspect where he comes up with this whole different kind of thing where it's like you have uh, I mean, and his writing wasn't all ex- exclusively of this um, kind of you know, aspect, no, but, but a large was, part of it but was. But there was enough of it. Yeah, where I mean, he did a lot of haunting stuff and like ghost stuff or just like we said, like, you know, rats and walls are coming across. this. But a lot of the major themes were like the theme of like, um, you know, since he was a reasonably intelligent guy, was like forbidden knowledge. You know, uh, someone, uh, a detective or, or someone curious stumbling across yeah. stuff and then striving to find it out and then because they find it out, it's knowledge that's either going to kill them, kill the world, going to drive them insane or it's going to like destroy them psychologically you know and this was a big thing to them and then him living in the time period of like the end of the industrial revolution with the roaring 20s and the um uh, after world war one it was very much like the um what do you call that the 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 pro uh, what's the word i'm looking for if, uh, it, when the a, a nation is profitable and uh you know very uh, like the the successor, uh, you know, the yeah. whatever. So he looked at, since he was kind of like, he wasn't a cultural person himself and kind of like shunned society because of his own insecurities. He looked at all that stuff as aspects of like a downfall or like, yeah. a, you know, so it's very much plays into now what you see coming out in this, in the Mouth of Madness story, which is, which is very, well, so yeah, much I, Lovecraft. You know, people equate it to S- Stephen King too, but it's so yeah, yeah. But it's very much more. And there's, you know, you could argue there's elements of of King in it, but it, yeah. it's so. I mean, even the opening depicts Trent uh, confined to this asylum, 
and the bulk of the story is told in flashback, which is a technique that Lovecraft used a lot. Yeah. Even structurally, it's kind of very uh, Lovecraftian. This idea of like the old ones is very Lovecraftian. Even the Pikmins, which is like the old woman and uh, the husband who owned the bed breakfast. Yeah. The Pikmin is Pikmin is a name that comes up. The Pikmin family is a is very much a. Uh, you nod to his yeah, writing. Not, not to that, that's a that's a character in a family that shows up in his work. And even when when you see Kane's uh, passages of Kane's writing or read aloud, some of that is actually taken word yeah, for word. It, like we said in the Kane's. rats and the, the walls, or yeah, there's a lot of references to um, to, to 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 his. They're they're actually quoting little uh, excerpts of Lovecraft's actual. Now work. the other thing that I always kind of. Uh, I loved about this movie and it was after we started going to film school and I started to fall in love with the uh, kind of the subgenre of the film noir was that it's very much a film noir movie too. Yeah. Like even the fact that uh, Trent, John Trent played by Sam Neill is uh, an insurance investigator. Yeah. And who which, does that now? Which is very much, I mean, Double Indemnity, yeah, which is one of my, f- which is my favorite film noir movie of all time. And one of my favorite films of all time, Fred McMurray plays an insurance investigator. Yeah. And, and that was the MacGuffin a lot of times back then in those film noir movies is that you're, you're looking for something. Is it a f- like out of the past? Robert yeah. Mitchum's hired to go find this girl, you know, or it's like, so that's always like you're, Either if you're, you know, you're a private eye, you're you're an insurance investigator, and that's going back to Dashiell Hammett or Raymond Chandler. Yeah. A lot of times, you're hired by these big insurance agencies, and you're you're a claims, you're a continental op to go after these things. And having the mid '90s a story where it's just a, a uh, guffin of that. And now, as much as I love In the Mouth of Madness, I very I, I realize that it's not a perfect film. It has yeah. its flaws, and to me, one of its biggest flaws. And I don't mean this as any disrespect to Julie Carmen, but I, I feel like she her. Her, her casting in this movie is a little bit of a um, of a problem. She plays she plays the editor the editor of Sutter Kane's books for the publisher. The publisher Sutter Kane goes missing. The publisher publishing company run by Charlton Heston. Yeah, to hires uh, great little cameo by Chuck Heston. <laughs> and evidently Carpenter says he was completely into it. He wanted to do like another reality kind of a film, and he's like, "Yeah, I'm really into it." And I, I mean, he's only in three scenes, but I think yeah. he's, he's really good. And he, you know, there the book uh, Sutter Kane, uh, the the, insur- the publishing company uses the insurance company that hires John Trent as a freelancer. Yeah, they're yeah they're insured by this company. So, so because it's such a big thing, Sutter Kane is you know the biggest author He's like in Stephen the world King, they say um they put their best freelancer on it which is John Trent um and so uh it becomes this adventure where uh John Trent and Linda Styles the uh, the editor go looking for uh for Sutter Kane the author now there's a you know there's supposed to be I think obviously there's supposed to be some attraction and, and in a lot of ways she becomes a little bit of a femme fatale yeah in, in more, you know, looking at it from a film noir thing, um, but her, she never really did it for me even from the very beginning I never really yeah, thought I, I didn't buy maybe it's a chemistry thing that they didn't have a good chemistry which is not to fault either one of them I can agree with you it there just doesn't work and I don't know I haven't really seen her really in anything else that I can really recall off yeah hand. every once in a while I'll see her pop up I'm like oh that's Styles yeah it's <laughs> such an interesting it is such an interesting casting to have her in such a critical role and I mean she 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 does it well but it's just you know you could have got somebody now, else Sam Deal on the other hand. Oh, I, love, I love Sam Neill. Oh, the opening of the movie, you have some of, three of my favorite actors of all time. You have John Glover, you have Sam Neill, and then you have David Warner there. <laughs> 
You know, and you know, I, I think John Glover plays such a great little part. Sorry there. about the balls. Yeah, it was a lucky shot. It was a lucky all. shot. That's all. You know, it's it, it's um, you, you know, Glover is so good in it. And then you get David. Yeah, Moore. I mean, it's such a, such a little uh, small parts, but but perfect casting. Yeah, little, so all these great, great little cameos. And then you know, uh, since we're talking about David Warner, he plays. Um, I guess he's a doctor that comes to yeah, but interview. I, I, I felt like he's a little more like the you know maybe he's FBI or something because he like oh they sent you so maybe he's at the state yeah. because he comes to interview Trent who's in the asylum out there. In the beginning. Um, and originally Trent doesn't want to be locked up, but then Trent wants to be locked up because Trent realizes that. Shit's hitting the fan he's outside. Safe he's place. safe here, yeah. so he he starts to act like he's crazy, whether he's not, you know, and he is crazy to a certain extent. Um, but so David Warner comes to interview him, and that's how the story starts in this flashback. He's telling Trent <laughs> is telling David Warner the story of how he got there. Um, I think it's worth noting for horror fans that, of course, uh, horror fans. Uh, David Warner's been in many films. But, oh, jeez. But The Omen. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so there's a little bit of an Omen connection because David Warner is in The Omen. He's playing. He's helping to investigate with uh, Gregory Peck. The boy. The boy. He's also in Time After Time playing but, um, Jack the Ripper. Little little time travel. <laughs> little spoiler alert for you. <laughs> little time travel there. Um. Uh, but at the same time, Sam Neill's big claim to fame was that he played Damien in the, in Omen. the Omen Three, so we have oh, a little yeah. bit of an uh, an Omen homage, like a, uh, uh, yeah, a connection. Um, and but uh, yeah, so the, the so uh, the character of Styles never really done it for me. Although I will say that one of the most disturbing parts of this movie for me, and this is you know we're gonna be jumping around the part that I, of the movie that I find scariest is when she comes back from the church. Um, in a nutshell, they go looking for Sutter Kane. They go on a road trip looking for Sutter Kane. They find Sutter Kane in this, what was thought to be an imaginary town called Hobson. Again, a nod to, uh, it's in it's in New England, so it's, all, again, very much a nod to Lovecraft. Uh, they find him in this church. They've been taking, <laughs> they take the kids. They're taking the kids. Um, and, and Sutter Kane's in this church finishing the book in the mouth of madness, uh, his next installment into the, this series. So she goes into the church and Sutter Cade's in there and he's, you know, he's like, do you want to read it? And then he like pushes her head over the thing and the light, scary flash cuts and whatnot. And then she comes back to the bed and breakfast and she comes and she like falls into the room on top of Trent. And she's like, I'm losing me, Trent. Oh, yeah, I'm yeah, losing yeah, yeah. me. Like to me, that's terrifying. <laughs> You know, the whole concept of the movie is, uh, you know, it, 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 you know, it's hinted at and, and the, there's foreshadowing to it from from the very beginning where Trent's like, I'm my, I'm my own man. Nobody pulls my strings. And then as we get further, further, very much story, a skeptic. Yeah, very much a, a skeptic. Of the and whole it always seems like these private, these these freelance uh, investigators, to whatever extent, are nothing but the always, facts. Yeah, they're always very much work. You know, I mean, this he, is he thinks of the horror as being very much, you know, this schlock. It's, you know, all, it's, it's garbage. Or even to the end when it's like you're even getting into the third act, he still kind of thinks it's a big publicity stunt. You know, yeah, yeah. You know, it'll help sell books if they even pull one over on the guy investigating. And, and when he and Styles are driving, trying to find this imaginary town in New Hampshire, he's like, you know, what do you like about it? And she's like, you know, what scares me about um, uh, 
Sutter Kane's work is like, what if it was real? And he's like, what are you talking about? It's just this horror. And she's like, well, it's not reality. This is reality. Yeah, this is reality. <laughs> There's not reality. Um, she's like, yeah, but what scares me is like, what if it was? You know, like reality is only what the majority kind of thinks it is. You yeah. know, it's like, what if the majority were the insane? And yeah. all of a sudden reality is not what is actual, what is considered reality isn't. Yeah, the norm. Isn't, the, you know. What, so that that idea is, uh, you know, it's kind of mind-blowing. And this movie becomes very meta. Very. In a way that kind of starts in the 90s um, with with another New Line picture, which comes out the year before, New Nightmare. Yeah. Which was Wes Craven returning to the Nightmare on Elm Street series. Um, and we can get a little bit into, like, how these are. Both written by... Um well, I don't think Le- I don't think DeLuca writes it, but um, oh, what did he write then? He wrote he wrote, he wrote the f- one before. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Um, the Nightmare on the Street, yeah, Freddy's Dead, the Final Nightmare. Um, but in a lot of ways, these t- those two movies that come out back to back, produced by the same company, Bob Shea's company, New Line Cinema, um, they're kind of like two sides of the same coin, and they're both saying something. They're both, in a way, kind of saying the opposite, which is really interesting, um, which I'll get to in a second, but. Uh, this idea of reality and it gets starts becoming very meta of like what's reality, what's not reality is Trent looking for Sutter Kane or is Trent part of the story? And so this idea of fiction and nonfiction, the line's starting to get blurred. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's very heavy. And so that moment where she you know, and she's oh, like, "Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> oh, it's just like, like I find it horrifying because you, uh, it's that it's really that moment where it's like, what is really going? Like, what is reality? Of, what is the reality of this movie? Yeah, because that's the thing is like I don't know if maybe by the end you could make some very definite uh, decisions about about you know what the reality of this movie is but it's never really totally clear and it's one of the things i love about this movie it almost plays like on a loop you know you, the movie well, that's starts the thing, where, like, you know it's the kids o- always... as they're trying to find Hobbs end we keep on seeing this oh, yeah, yeah, kid yeah. on a bicycle and that's and, uh, scary and too. he keeps on passing the car and and then finally he's like this it, you know they could have just got an old person. That's another flaw that I think about in the movie. It's like now it's the same kid, but in like old makeup. Yeah, then he's, and he's got on his, his bike for how and many he's years? got like the same voice. Yeah, I can't get out. <laughs> yeah, and he's he's got his like. Well, you let know, me leave. Jeans jacket on with his iron. You know, so this you know, idea is like he's catches. trying to. He's he's. It's a whole other story, you know. Like that's a character like John Trent who's trying to escape this this story that he's yeah. been and he's on his to. like his huffy or bmx bike with the uh with cards, cards and the ties folks you know and uh so it's like trent's not the only person in this movie being that's drawn trying, in that's the... trying to escape but not yeah. being able to leave which is you know what i think is uh i've often said that for me the movie that's most representative of a nightmare is Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like what an actual nightmare is like. Cause my, my personal dreams aren't, they very rarely get very surreal. Yeah. It, but the idea of trying to run away from danger and always just ending back in like the nest, <laughs> you know, is, is very nightmarish. And, and that happens in, uh, no matter what Sally in Texas Chainsaw Massacre tries to do, she tries to run away from it. But somehow she always ends up, back at the house yeah uh, it's fucking horrifying and this yeah. so this is like taken in like more of a uh 
you know, metaphysical, uh, paranormal way of the, the this guy on the bike is trying to leave. And then later, Trent keeps on trying to drive out of the town, but he keeps on ending up right back into the I remember when I watched this with my wife, um, she got a get upset near that end where you know he's in the car trying to leave she's like i don't like movies like this i don't like where there's there's things where you can't get out of something where it's very much where you're stuck in this yeah there's no exit you're just trapped you're trapped like, in no this, matter what you try to you do know, you always end up back yeah um stepping back you have the movie start off like we said at the asylum which they used a toronto water treatment plant which is very nice looking amazing yeah. that they the had great location yeah movie. it's all they, they shot like, it up in canada looks like all canada and um, they use this beautiful water treatment plant. looks right out of, like, a DC Comics Arkham Asylum. And um, sadly, I guess they don't let anyone shoot in this water plant now post-9-11 because for security reasons. But um, they're there. John Glover, uh, uh, David Warner interviewing um, Sam Neill. Sam Neill gives him a crayon. He's in the thing. He paints the entire on one black crayon, crosses everywhere. <laughs> he has a hell of a yeah, crayon. A hell of a crayon. Writes on flesh. Didn't even have a, <laughs> didn't even have a sharpener. He only on one on one crayon he was able to get everything. And then and he wasn't even done yet. He wasn't even done. He's still going. And then that's where he's like, you you want to hear something really sta- scary? We start the story. Flashback to. Uh, we see him, you know, working his first, uh, see how good of an uh, investigator he is. He trips up somebody in an arson case. Yeah, well, it's just paid by Peter Jason, who's a John Carpenter yeah. regular, but basically every single one of John Carpenter's movies since Prince of Darkness. And you love that um, that piece of music. It, Robbie's Office. Robbie's one Office. One of my favorite yeah, pieces of music. From this film. And then uh, we get to the, you know, the next scene is the, the two of them are hanging out, and they're in like a diner, and he's talking about like, this is the next case. You ever heard of Sutter Kane? And uh, he's like, maybe. And he's like, he's got a new book coming out. We don't know where he is. And we set up this movie. We need you to go find him because, you know, uh, he's coming out and he's disappeared. And this is a big thing. And, you know, we're worried because at, at the time they don't have the manuscript, is it? Right? The, they don't yeah, have the like finished. Part of it has been sent to his agent. To yeah, the but they need the, the agent. Yeah, and they have timetables because of publications. They can't push the publication back any further. Yeah, because in the old days here, like we saw in the credits, it's all physical printing books and stuff. So, and, uh, would always frighten me. I saw this movie right when it came out. Maybe it came out like on a Tuesday. I saw it that weekend on video. And um, I probably didn't watch it until I watched it with you in college. But that whole opening there, I always thought was so frightening. Yeah, where the guy who comes from across the street. Yeah, and, and they're playing it like in a two-shot. And then in the middle of them talking. I kind of wish that they played it all in one I know. Shot. I, There's I a rem- couple of things in this movie that I wish... I mean, maybe it was the original plan to, and it just didn't work yeah. out. Yeah, but like like one long take. See, I remember it being one long take, but, but then not, in this yeah. one, yeah, that you you cut to that. There's a close up of him coming out of whatever he's coming out of, and then he walks, through, and that would have been f- fabulous if they played it that way. And then you have this. He, he's he's you see he's got a big axe. He's crazy looking. He's walking across the street. He knows what's going hops on. Hops the fence. Into hops the, the fence. Breaks the window. Comes in. Letter gay. Yeah, and then you then Sam Neil looks at his eyes, and his eyes are all fucked up. He's got this weird thing going on where there's like two pupils almost crossing. It's like two almost looks like um like an eclipse, but like you know when they're only a quarter yeah, together. Yeah. And then of course uh, right before the guy takes the axe up, he gets killed by the the, the police, which I think now the police would get a lot of trouble for <laughs> might even lose their jobs and they go to jail because you know it's, they're shooting them one out and like you know. well i mean he is armed with an axe about to kill somebody they might be okay it's debatable that. they need to have those body camera footage but then he get he saves they save the day can't he thinks nothing of it it's like ah, just well day. he like laughs at it which yeah. is like which is an uh, reaction that i'm sure i've noticed before but i have forgotten about but watching it this time I, I, is it the th- you know he kind of he smiles uh, we're talking about Sam Neill like after it happens it's like, the other guy plays it great the um 
his boss, the African American gentleman. Yeah, yeah, I love his reaction to it. He's just really like he like Bernie pees Casey. Pants. Yeah, he, he, was he pees his pants. Yeah, yeah, great actor, great character actor. Uh, but yeah, like obviously Trent like flinches and tries to cover up when he thinks he's going to get killed. But then after he's saved, I don't know if it's the relief of being saved, the excitement of the moment, yeah, or just the anxiety or, or whatever, or like it the seems thrill. a lot of times he to me comes off like a kind of. Um, very much like a pompous kind of a guy. Yeah. He knows he's great, and then because of that, his shit doesn't stink. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, I think it's... It, he it, kind of prides himself on, like, I know I can... No one can, you know, outdo me, or no one can outwit me. And I've made my career... He's the number one freelance investigator for this insurance firm, you know. So he's made a career out of outsmarting yeah, yeah. anybody, no matter oh, what yeah. it is. Oh, yeah. Well, he's, you know, she's so, like, have you ever busted somebody that you know? He's like, oh, yeah. Well, you know, when you do the... Yeah, you have do to. Do the crime, you got to do the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's like very, he's very much, you know. So the next scene is he goes up to the offices of the publisher. He meets the the Charlton Heston character. Who I think is brilliant. He's like, you must go find the. the no, I don't know why he's Cade. Yeah, he's like, you read Sutter Kane, and then he's like, you know, they go take take the editor with you. And then yeah, he wants to go, and he's like, I don't want you to go by yourself. I want somebody representing. And see, none of this at this point to me seems like forced. Like, um, and I don't know why, because you know, we've seen this a hundred well, times it, before, but maybe because it's so fresh because we haven't seen yeah. this template. I mean, you and I, because we watch older movies, but yeah. maybe for the new person, you know, okay, go find, we're going to take you with, you know, I, th- I find it all like, okay, this is, you know. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because right off the bat, Sam Neill's like, I'll go look at it for him, but do you want me to find him? Yeah, he's very because skeptical. he's very much thinking that like it's the publisher. This is some kind of and it very well could thing, be. You which know? is also and Chuck very, Heston's kind of like, is it or is it not? Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, he's like, well, if that was you know, and then it's revealed that it was uh, Kane's agent was the guy with the axe. And then, you and met so, him yesterday. So Samuel's <laughs> like, well, I don't know. He should have had better. He should find better representation. Um, but at the same time, it's like if, if does he you, make a joke? There's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one looks. Yeah, basically. But at the same time, if if you go by Sam Neill's logic that this is a promotional stunt, then it's like he's got the best agent ever because that guy just literally gave his life to. <laughs> to <laughs> he was shot and killed by police. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the guy death literally put his life on the line and to I, make this promotional stunt work. And I want to put a little plug in the. Uh, the it cuts to the next scene because it's supposed to be New York City, and the um, reporter that's in that next scene is actually during the eighties, nineties. Growing up in, in the New York City area, that was an actual like you know local new reporter. I remember growing up in the eighties. Yeah. I used to get that. I don't for life. I don't remember the reporter's name. I used to get him confused with Phil Hartman because to me the two of them look alike. Yeah, yeah. So I used to be like, oh, you know, for some reason in the late eighties, I thought that was Phil Hartman. I was like, yeah. I didn't know he's a local reporter too. So I haven't thought of that guy in twenty years to see that they. Yeah, they it's funny got how him. you sometimes see people like in the movie Sneakers. Yeah, uh, with uh, Robert Redford and Sidney Poitier and. Uh, a whole and, bunch uh, of people. Dan Aykroyd, Ben Kingsley. Yeah, yeah. River Phoenix. Oh, River Phoenix. <laughs> That's a movie we should get to um, at some point. <laughs> um, but there's a local, on the TV, there's a local anchorman reporting the news, and that was a local an- anchorman in the Albany area. Yeah, you're like, wow, well, no, how did they get this hey, It's the Channel 6 guy. Yeah. It's this um, big movie with Robert Redford. And so I guess it lays little credence that it's New York City. Well, it's funny because now, you know, there's a lot of film, TV production in New York now yeah. these days. So there's a lot of shows that I watch like uh, anything from Gotham is shot here. or uh, But there's a lot of, so there's, 
you know, there's a channel here called New York One, which is yeah. an all day news channel for about for local news. And there's always the anchors from New York One. And those are, that's the news I watch in the morning when I'm getting ready to go to work because yeah. it's all about like what the weather's like, what the traffic's going to be like in New York. And it's just like it runs like on a loop every half hour. Yeah, very so it's local. Um, so it's like, oh, there's uh, Annika Pergamon. And <laughs> like, like they're all everybody in these in the in the TV nowadays seems to be like my local news anchors. Yeah. Because I live here. Here, oh. and everything's shot here. So then that's so then Heston kind of puts them on the you know and you're gonna go do this and then before they set off, he tells um th- what's her face the editor that Style. I'm, Styles I'm gonna go um uh, I'm gonna go research so he goes and buys as many books as he can. Remember and then we come across you start seeing these people like you want some too, buddy? Well, there's that guy the <laughs> yeah the cop <laughs> yeah uh, beating for he yeah this is this becomes another thing of there's a scene where he's walking home and I guess walking home he goes through back he goes to the same back alley that's cut through every night yeah and there's plastered on the wall is uh you the Sutter Kane books yeah which is like uh, for Knob's End or whatever and then in the, in the alleyway down there there's like a bunch of homeless people and there's yeah. a, there's like a, a a beat cop beating the crap out of somebody and he looks at you know Samuel you want some too buddy and Samuel's like no oh, he keeps walking but then he goes to the bookstore. Oh, in yeah, the bookstore, he, he's buying yeah. these books. And he, we have his kid walk up to him. He's like, I see now. And the kid's like all messed up looking. He sees when, you. Yeah. Thomas said hi. <laughs> <laughs> and then he leaves, has the part with the cop beating. Then he goes to his house. And then and then he starts he starts reading the stuff. And he's, then he's, he's like, you know, it, it, it's keeping him up in the sense where because, you know, he's lack of sleep because he's trying to like cram everything in all these books. And, and I always think of that like I'm a very sm- slow reader. Yeah. And I also like this. I don't know if it's I think it's true that I think I have dyslexia because I so I have to read things a couple times. Yeah. So like, Jesus, if that was me, I'd be, I, I'm only <laughs> I'm only a quarter. Of the, I'm yeah. only chapter two of this yeah. of the first of book. The first book. How did it end? You know, <laughs> but like, you know, you have people who are, you know, gifted with the with the ability to read quickly where he's already like one night. He's done yeah. four books. <laughs> he's, read, he's read all five books. You know, these are like, you know, four or five hundred pages, like Stephen get, King thick. You know, they're written, they're written a little better than you'd think. They kind of get to you after a while. Yeah, and, he's, and you could tell he's like, you know, he's, he's been cramming it all in. So it's so then he's talking, to, he's talking to the editor on the phone, isn't he? I think he's talking to Robbie, his, uh, his boss. The insurance oh, okay. guy at the insurance company. And then so he falls, he kind of nods off, and, he, and then he has the same kind of a, he passes the... Uh, the thing again, he passes the alleyway. Yeah, he has, an, he has a dream. And then he's passing, and the then alley. it's but it's it's slightly skewed, skewed because the the cop now has like his face is a little. It's not yeah. a real face. It's kind of like there's like a little demonic. Yeah. And then he passes it a third time, and the the face he the cop's face is is very demonic to a certain extent, like rotting or demonic. And then at the other end, he gets gets pushed by people who are like you know oh, like one there. of us. One <laughs> yeah. of, and then the, you see the uh, the, the agent, the agent, manager the manager from the beginning who was killed says like doesn't say like you know he's watching. He says like oh, he's yeah. watching you, whatever. Then all the people with the axes surround the agent, hack him to death. Very scary. And then I, it's funny because you have a lot of at the beginning of the movie. Remember where he's talking to David Warner. And uh, you have, or right before that, you have the, fl- you have like, here's what's to come, and they have like that montage of really yeah, yeah. scary things that's going to happen in the movie, and uh, you have a little of that there. Then he wakes up, and he's in bed. He's like, wow, that was crazy, and he like kind of comes out, and then next to him is the cop. You want some too, buddy? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he looks which like is very demon. much like the double scare. And then he wakes up again. He jolts up again. Or the but there's scare. a minute there. He's like, ah, he's sitting there. Ooh. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> then, then, like, as it comes up, it's like the cops waiting there, and it's like, dun, dun. and it's almost like they held it a little too long because cops well, like, 
we yeah, cut? Yeah. Are we cut? And then it's <laughs> well, like, uh, you know, that the, 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 the two, the double jump scare is something that he does kind of at the end of uh, Prince of Darkness. Uh, Carpenter talks about I've how... I've never seen Prince of Darkness, and I, I hate to admit that, so don't, don't ruin anything for me for Prince of Darkness. Um, but it's just like, it's a, I'm just saying, yeah. it's, a, it's a convention that Carpenter it works. Had, had used before. One of, but it's funny, Carpenter points at that scene as being the hardest scene in the movie for him to cut. Um, because he feels like rhythmically he was off as a director, and so it doesn't that double that double scare doesn't to, in his mind doesn't work. As I think well it's it, I think it's it's it, it whole, it's it's like a beat long or something. Yeah, and I think if it was trimmed a little better or something, it might have worked. Like I would use the example of John Landis's uh, freaking uh, Werewolf in London, yeah. American Wolf, that. I saw that at a very formidable age, and that scene where like he wakes up and he's in the hospital room, and then she's like, "Let me just open the windows," and then the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that yeah. perfectly worked. So you could tell, you know, it, this stuff's starting to affect him, and then he gets into the car with her, and they start going on this drive yeah, to go yeah. towards I mean, I don't New know England. How much of that? No, 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 nothing. And then that's where we get into. He gets to this town, and then we can start now. This well, it becomes craziness yeah, it's the element it has like these elements of like a road movie, which are kind of good. And he's like, she's sleeping, and for some reason, he has like a little. Uh, you know, like clown horn in his in his glove compartment. He wakes her up. It's you know, it's uh, you know, Trent. Like you said, Trent is in a way he's a little uh, stuck up, a little set in his ways, which could be um, viewed as being unlikable traits for a main character. Yeah. As you're trying to follow a protagonist into well, she it, certainly through, doesn't through, like it through the story. You know, she. It, I think it's a turn she doesn't her. like it, but she's not necessarily likable. But yeah. you get you do get like these little moments where he, you know, he gooses her a little bit with that. You yeah. know, wakes her up with that horn, and she's like, "You asshole, just shake me." And she's like hitting him, which he's like, "Don't you know, never." Throw chips at a what I got when I'm throwing. Well, I like how driving. they, you know, there's a little bit of this, little bit of this interaction, which does kind of like uh, endears them a little bit to you as as an audience. Yeah, and I think um, as as much as Trent maybe is an unlikable character, uh, I think so. There's a way that Sam Neill plays him. That doesn't make that off-putting to a viewer. No, he doesn't like, make you, it. You, he's not despicable. Yeah, you're like you're willing to go in with it, and you do care that he's and and the fact that he is so set in his ways, that he is so sure of himself, obviously is a plot device because we, you know, it, it becomes really, very questionable whether on, he yeah. is really pulling his own. Strings. And I like how when he switches. You know, they, then he takes a nap and she's she starts driving and it's dark out and, and she starts seeing this kid in this loop. Yeah, he yeah. goes by a couple times and he sees an old man going the opposite way with the way. And then she has this incident where she she hits the guy. They get out of the car, they run, and, and he's like, I'll get a blanket. And she's holding him. And then all of a sudden, very scary, he gets up, he's fine, he leaves. And then Sam Neill's back with the blanket. He's like, Oh, um, he was like, all right, okay, we'll have to tell the cop next town. All right, you keep driving. It's like, yeah, you, yeah. you would have, like, I'll drive. You, you <laughs> yeah, I know you just hit somebody, but, <laughs> but uh, you some know. crazy-looking kid. And then that whole, that whole scene where it's, um, you know, then, like, she has a little thing where she starts seeing things, and there's, like, a little, what's going on, what's going on, and then all of a sudden, like, she goes through a covered bridge, and then it's, like, yeah. it ends on the other side of the covered bridge. It's almost like we're in the uh the Beetlejuice Tim Burton town yeah, where it's yeah. it's bright day you know it, you know we don't know what happened and then Sam Neill wakes up and he's you like did oh it. yeah I, I <laughs> you must have slept it. all night and then she's like you know the, we so know the audience knows yeah, yeah. that like it's gone through some crazy shit yeah because a minute ago it was just uh she's driving through the clouds yeah for but, a yeah and all that kind of weird you know so <laughs> a minute a ago it was, just, it was just dark and then you know no one's and then we we, we see the kids 
yeah, and that's yeah. very much the kids. No one's in the town, and he's saying it's a picture perfect town, and you know it's 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 out of a store, but no one's around. And you see these kids running by, like they're chasing a dog, and then like it looks like later on the dog they end up like cutting the dog's leg off or some oh, yeah, crazy shit. Knows. It's just um, a lot of uh, you know. We, it, but we, it's very children of the corn, which is yeah, no, yeah. is it children of the corn? No, which is the one where it's the I think it is children of the corn. Which, which is the original George Sanders movie where it's like the the. Uh, Aliens and the kids and they all oh, glowing on. I'm sorry, it's very much which village. Is, which, Ca- which Carpenter would remake the following year? Yeah, so it's very. Uh, he must have maybe thought of that. Like maybe this is a good idea. But again, you know, people could. You could. I think Children of the Court is a Stephen King thing, and a lot of people kind of look at some of a lot of this as being homages to Stephen King, who also set a lot of his work in New England. Yes, um, Castle Rock and Maine and and. Areas my favorite of- shot of the whole movie. Is in that scene. It's when they're looking in like the blacksmithing antique shop or whatever, and then they turn and they start to walk back towards the car. And you see in the far distance, there's something out of focus. Yeah, and then the fucking focus puller earning his keep like nobody's business. And <laughs> in that shot, because then he rack, he rack focus all the way back, and then it's like the bloody axe stuck in the wood. Yes, it's, a, it's I all like, bloody. I love that shot. It's such a beautiful. I mean, Carpenter. You know, they could say this. People always say with Carpenter, like you hear Carpenter's music, you know, it's a John Carpenter movie. You look at the way Carpenter's films, the shot compositions, yeah, the, that two three five extra wide aspect ratio, like it's. Such a signature of Carpenter, the way he. Uh, well, who was shooting his stuff back then for like um, the thing? Is Halloween the, that was Dean Cundy. Yes, Dean Cundy, and then was is Dean Cundy also like um, Assault point. on Precinct Thirteen? No, that was I think Dean Cundy came on maybe for Halloween, but then Dean Cundy did Halloween, Escape from New York, uh, Halloween's two and three, The Fog. I think Cundy did The Fog. Because that that very much has a look that I I can tell that's a John Carpenter movie. But then as we get into like the late nineties, not so much Big Trouble in China. But then you know in, into the nineties with stuff I can't really. I mean you know yeah, it's not yeah. really I can't really tell by the maybe it's also the stock of film as well. Yeah. You yeah. know I haven't seen Escape from L.A. In, since it came out on video. So yeah. Um, I don't remember, and I remember that being like kind of a, spe- a lot of special effects maybe with the with the surfing. Yeah, and stuff. it's very much a and that one I think a lot of people uh, don't like Escape from L.A. Um, because it's basically a parody of Escape from New York. I mean, if you look at it, like I think what its intention was that it is very much a parody. Yeah, it's playing off the idea of Escape from New York um, in a more comedic way. I guess they look at it like. Escape from New York is such a like a fantastic idea to have then LA be the same <laughs> thing. It's like, well, you know. Um, uh, but this, so yeah, by the time they get to Hobbs End, uh, we're, f- you know, we're full into the adventure here. They go to the bed and breakfast. They wreck. He's like, oh, how did you know this was here? Did you been here before? He's like, no, she's like, I read about it. Because now it's, this is the imaginary town, quote unquote imaginary town that Kane's been writing about in all his books. You know, it's like, everybody's like, there's not, you know, the, there's a whole plot device where the covers, there's images on the covers of Kane's books that when you cut. Yeah, them when out, I was little, I never really figured. I never followed that logic when I remember when I first saw it. But yeah, he's when he's after he's having those those dreams. With he the discovers cop. that there's certain designs on the covers that when you cut them out, and you can, all the, of all the books he's reading, it's like a map yeah. that'll lead you to Hob, Hobbs End theoretically. And then so he takes it to the publishers. He says, "Look, I don't know if you guys know it. It's 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 the map is the state of New Hampshire, and then in the, the, here's how, and that's how they're able to find. Yeah, he's like, well, Hobbs End doesn't exist. Yeah. he's like, well, you know, maybe not." A 
on any contemporary map, but there's all these little villages and blah, blah, blah. So they end up that, going up. That get lost. And, and I want to say before we leave the, the shot composition, I really enjoyed when Chuck Heston assigns her to him. The next shot is them kind of coming down. And I like how they play that whole one scene in one shot where he's there by the elevators and they're trying to bantering yeah, back yeah. and forth. It's very much like the Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck banter yeah, yeah. before. And, and that could have been a, a scene that they, they cut out, use cutaways. And it's very much like, you know, uh, the camera movement as well, them crossing back and forth in frame for different yeah. shot compositions. And you don't get a lot of that nowadays where you're able to keep everything in a medium or a long shot and play an entire scene in one, one t unless, you know, it's one of these things now where it's a camera running around after somebody and then, you know, the camera's doing a lot of movement itself. So I find that uh, very good. And I also liked how when he was when when he called his boss and he's trying to explain away what it is, he says, "Oh, it's just like this year's hula hoop. It's just a gimmick, you know." It's, yeah, you know, yeah. And he's, he's he's very much like a pessimist of it. But when he gets up to this town, like you're saying, they they go into this little like uh, B and B, and the old woman in the B and B, who a lot of people will recognize, um, she's from she's in an episode of Seinfeld. Of stuff, yeah. She's a woman who didn't start acting until really late in life. I think she plays Happy Gilmore's grandmother. And, yeah, uh, or, yeah, grandmother, and she she didn't start acting until real late in life, and then she had this horrible tragedy, like in the early two thousands, where she was hit by a car and she had to have her leg amputated. Oof, yeah, and then uh, I don't know what happened to her afterward, but I think she ended up passing away. Um, late, you know, a couple of years yeah. later, because she was already kind of uh, elderly. Um, but then, she, th when they get into this little B and B, the editor is telling him, you know, aren't you recognizing everything here? Like yeah. they, they, they. There's a painting behind me. Yeah, <laughs> you know, there's a conservatory, and can, they're talking about, the, 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 you know, that there's a scene at the end of one of the books in the conservatory, and and, and there used Hobbs to be end. full of all kinds of weird uh, plant life, and then the villagers came or whatever. Yeah, and, and then it down. And so and then that's the, why it's empty now. And then the old woman, they're like, see, she's the old woman, and she has her husband locked up, and then they go upstairs, and then it's like, you know, they're saying he's like, he's like, if this is the thing, he, he opens the memory, he says. You'd see right. a church with a spire, and he looks, and it's not there. And she goes, you didn't read it. It's the east, and then they open it. It's there. And you're like, what yeah. the hell? And Which then a church in Ontario. They found that location. Yeah, it's a, that. it's a, it's a, uh, an insane, an insane church in Ontario. That this, this, this big old like, it's a, like a reform, or it's a, um, it's a crazy old church in the middle of freaking nowhere. Um, I can't find the name of the damn thing. It's like now. a Slavic Byzantine yeah. Yeah. Roman Catholic church. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. Located in Markham, Markham, Toronto, or Ontario. Ontario. Sorry, um, yeah, there's so much to talk about in this movie. And then so. you have the villagers showing up, and the villagers. You have this whole plot of like you know, the, 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 give us back, you know. And then that's yeah. that's where you f have our first appearance of uh, of uh, Vigo. Yeah, <laughs> Vigo. Oh yeah, Vigo. He comes, and then you have uh, Jurgen Proctow comes up, and he's like yeah. you know, hello, and it's very much a, a produced shot where he's like you know. They must well, have took I mean, them all day. They're so, uh, I mean, there's so much to talk about uh, in terms of the movie, and then there's so many things thematically. I think we just need to kind of like put the pedal to the metal and yeah. just kind of blow through some of this. Uh, what's going on in the story, like we said, it, we, we start to have the, blur, the blurred lines of reality and, or fiction and nonfiction, and so much so that even the people in the town are kind of aware of it. Like he even like the, the, the Vigo guy from Ghostbusters two, we have in Die Hard in the, in the bar. He's, you know, he's Later like, I don't, on, yeah. I don't remember what came first, us or the books and stuff. And it, uh, it, it's all sets this like this very kind of like eerie tone. And, and what we kind of discovered by the end, the, towards the end of the movie is that, um, 
Sutter Kane starts to realize that, like, I thought I was making all this shit up, but it's, like, really the old ones. They're speaking through they me. They were feeding him the info. And, uh, you know, he, it's, he starts commenting on, you know, um, you know, like, religion, like, you know, more people read my books than read the Bible. The thing about religion, you think about, like, the Bible is, you know, nobody ever believed it enough to make it real. Yeah. You know, whereas like people believe my work well enough to make it real. Now, what's interesting about this notion of uh, this is we're getting back to New Nightmare, which is a movie that another movie that I like a lot. Not I don't like it as much as it's not as important to me as this movie. But in uh, in Down the Mouth of Madness, we're taking the notion that there's this uh, ancient force, these these old ones that back are to H.P. Lovecraft that are coming breaking into reality through the works of Sutter Kane. Yeah. The works of Sutter Kane are what's like people are reading it and that's what's going to end up, you know, causing. So the, the more the more people who read it and the greater audience he exposes it to, the greater power they begin to have because it's being disseminated by more people yeah. in 18 language 18 countries, languages, they and start giving you all these stats. And there's a bit of like this great moment where uh, you know, they, they impl- he says that basically, like his agent read it. Yeah, and he's like, "Did you think it was like an accident that he tried to kill you?" He's like, "He read it. He knew because he read it. He knew you were going to bring this to the world, and that's why he tried to kill you." So it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like this great thing. Now, if you take a new nightmare, for instance. Uh, like I said, it's two sides of the same coin because you're working with very similar what's fiction, what's nonfiction, um, alternate, you know, like reality, all these things happening in New Nightmare with Freddy. But the difference is where in New Nightmare, I mean, in, in the Mouth of Madness, it's it's the media, it's the book that's going to bring the evil yeah. to to the world. What's happening in New Nightmare is the opposite. Freddy, the evil has been... Uh, imprisoned by the fact that the movies exist, you know, by giving, you know, it's it's like by giving audiences by by bringing people these scary stories, it's keeping the evil at bay. It's like they're ed- exercising the evil by having the stories. Now it's it, almost like having like a pressure gauge on like a uh, or a pressure valve on yeah. A, on it's a like we're letting out a little bit. Yeah. And it's keeping the so it's not building the it door up. shut. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And because a night a, a Nightmare on Elm Street movie hasn't existed in so many years, by the time Nightmare on Elm, uh, the new Nightmare comes out, it's like it's starting to build up. Freddy's now trying. He's break. He's finding new ways. To break into and that's blurring the lines. Of. Yeah, so it's like it's I. It's very interesting that I never really thought about it in that way. It's like it's very it's very much the opposite. It's like the Freddy stories are keeping Freddy at bay yeah. from becoming real, whereas in this one, the the Sutter Kane stories are what's going to make it real. In, you know, even when I watched it this time around, I, I I thought it was a great not a great twist, but it's a hilarious reveal at the very end when he goes back to Chuck Heston and, and Heston, you know, he's like, you know, you, you brought us the manuscript. Oh, who the fuck are you? He's you like, brought you, it to us months ago. Yeah. It's in stores already. <laughs> it's by, <laughs> played by Cary Grant. You're, God damn it. Yeah, he's like, what do you mean? To, but he's like, you know, he's like, I hope it's, you know, it, it, it's going to be good. Um, you know, we got the movie coming out next month and that's great. <laughs> and it's like for, you know, how about people who don't read? Well, there's a movie coming. Yeah, so it's yeah. like, it's crossing, you know, book on tape. It's crossing then all these genres so that everyone's going to see it. And 
then it starts getting scary where they're saying that there is this phenomenon where people are starting at first getting paranoid or getting it's his his books are affecting people to a certain extent and i mean it's it's a silly comparison but you can kind of say that like harry potter books when harry well, potter exactly. came out you, you know, know i mean like you think about it, people were just you know insane and, and that I, I i'm i fully you know support people reading and people yeah, like, yeah. especially kids for harry potter and all that kind of stuff that him getting something behind that's good that's going to make him smarter but well it's exactly scary, this i evil. mean that's that's kind of the next point um historically and thematically is that uh the idea of um violent material causing violence yeah you know this is something that carpenter has dealt with his whole career um, in, in, in terms of even in Halloween 2, which we talked, you know, if you want to l- go back to last October's Halloween 2 cast, there was a guy who murdered, uh, I think, an old couple and blamed yeah. Halloween 2. It said he saw Halloween 2 and then he was compelled to do this. So this idea of, you know, violence, p- promoting violence through through media causes violence. You know, what's came first, the chicken or the egg kind of thing. So this is something that Carpenter's always been. Uh, wrestling with wrestling with but also has always called horseshit so the fact that the script came along i mean carpenter didn't write it but it's very much like this comment on um you know having like books movies and stuff being you know affecting an audience in a way that would uh you know cause the end of the world cause violence cause a mass hysteria mass uh uh, schizophrenia which is a very scary stuff concept yeah it's a very scary concept and also like you said with you know it's it's take into consideration something like harry potter you know there there were groups that were very much against harry potter like we don't want kids shouldn't be reading about witchcraft and wizardry like this is like the black arts you know so you know it's very much there was a controversy with harry potter and harry potter was so big and just like it's like okay think just think about that like it is like uh and it was book form too. It wasn't even like it was, you know, Pokemon Go or some yeah. sort of new medium. Like it was a, a book. A, it was like, a series of books and then a series of movies. And it's become, you know, and a now huge show. They're working on a musical. Now. Well, they have. A, they've made a whole studio of Disney down in Florida or whoever Universal. They've made an entire theme park. They have a whole theme park you in know, London at Warner Brothers. They have all the sets still up. I yeah. mean, it's a huge, huge phenomenon. Let's take into. Let's think about it for a second. Like if that kind of thing could affect people yeah. like that is like the perfect parallel i mean obviously it's a kid's book you know but i mean there's or is up, it there's fucked up shit in that, in no but they books, also talk about too that the, the genius thing about how it's written is like the first book is very much like a kitty book but then as the character gets older it's written that way too so well as yeah get, well he's always you know it's written for which i think is brilliant about those books is that she wrote them at a reading level for the age that harry is at the time so that you as a child as you as you uh, mature him, yeah. and your reading level in terms of, uh, you know, capability, you know, it starts to, you're growing along with Harry. So it's like, it's not always, I don't know. Like, yeah. It's not always that first, yeah. you know, that first age. You're group not always writing it for that original age group. Yeah. You're writing, it is, it's built into it that it would, it works for you, you know, like, by, a, like as, you, as you mature. It's into, like an adult, like, you know, yeah, which is brilliant because you think about those things are like, you know, I don't know, a thousand pages or this. They're thick. They're almost as big as like Game of Thrones books, you know. Uh, so my first viewing of this, uh, I, you know, I didn't I didn't fully understand it. And then for me, I never really liked it as much because it kind of fell apart for me once he got to this, you know, 
to Hobbs End and it's very open ended. You know what's going on now. And I'd seen it with you. I, I, I mean, I have couldn't tell you the last time I've seen this movie, but I'd seen it enough that like when we watched it, I recognize parts and I know scenes and I know yeah. verbatim lines and stuff. So when I watched it now with you, it seems like a lot of it makes more sense in a sense of the ambiguity isn't so much like Carpenter doesn't know where to go. So he's just trying to, I don't know what it could mean. What do you think? But it yeah, seems yeah. like the ambiguity is a little more planned as opposed to not being devoid of script logic or, or, or uh, any kind of idea of where he doesn't I know the script that, to go. Yeah, I mean, I feel like you, there, there's a, you're, as an audience, you are capable of making your definitive decision. Like, it's not... But it could go either way, you know. It's not. It's like not as, like it's not ambiguous for the sake of being ambiguous. Yeah. Or because nobody really knows, you know. It's it's clear enough in either direction. But I mean, to me, it's very much true. Like what's happening is true. You know. Uh, and it starts getting very terrifying. Like the the whole thing with the when they go back to the church, she goes back to the church and she confronts um, Sutter Kane, and that's when he exposes her to the thing. Yeah, and then yeah. we get the little homage to like Argento with the, no, not Argento, Fulci with the crying eyes. Or something. Yeah, yeah. Right, City of the Living Fulci, Dead. Yeah. Uh, like when she gets out, she walks outside of her car, and the kids are there, and they're all like demonic kids, and you yeah, see my her mommy. Yeah, today's mommy's day. Yeah. <laughs> so freaky and then like the dog is like i gotta get out of here and like try to limp away and it's yeah, like yeah. that's all freaky so there's like a lot of things well, yeah going that on. goes back to what we talk about with like the uh, red and there was something else we watched recently where it's like all these things are just put in uh we talked about deep red with uh the dogs and the the lizard and so oh, the animal know, violence like, and there's just, just all the shock stuff value. that just yeah puts you on your edge and just keeps you off kilter yeah and then the, as the, a viewer the character that the uh the the actor who played Vigo in the Ghostbusters movie, yeah. he, his character actually for me is very much a a better character than I remember him being. You know, because yeah. you have he actually has an arc where he's like, you know, the, the townspeople want their children back because they've been stolen for whatever reason. Yeah, we don't like it's their. It's a whole their movie. Well, we, we can assume you know, that they become like they've become like you know like like hellhounds or whatever some sort of well, demonic. even like you know Sutter Kane. He's like. I can't hold him back any longer, you know, like he's like Sutter Kane, even though he's writing it so that they can be escaped. And there's a part of him that's like is trying to hold them, hold them at bay yeah, as long as he can. Yeah. Or yeah, maybe or if, if it's self self-serving because he wants his thing out there. But um, and then like, you know, later on when uh, Sam Neill meets him in the bar and you say he says, I don't remember what came first, the the Vigo character, the myself or the book. And then yeah. at the end when he's, you know, uh, Sam Neill still not believing at all, and then like, or maybe he is, but he's just saying it to himself, like yeah, he's yeah. just trying to make, try to convince himself that it's fake. And then the guy blows his brains out with two barrels of a shotgun. He's like, you know, don't do it. He's like, I have to. He wrote me out this way. <laughs> he wrote me this way. And he, and he, he kills him. That's horrifying. He wrote me this way, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He turns into Peter Lorre. He wrote me this way, Rick. Um, and then he gets into the car, and then it has this sequence to terrify my wife, where he's trying to get out of the town, and then it's just it's it's on a loop where he he keeps getting back into the town, he's getting back into the town, then he drives through him, and then he sees her, and then it just, and then yeah. it comes out to like, and then he's in the middle, he's at the crossroads, which crossroads, which yeah. is very much you know going back to like um, old wives' tales, is like where you meet the devil, it's demonic, you, you go to the crossroads in the middle of nowhere, and even though this is supposed to be New Hampshire, it doesn't look a lot like New Hampshire with cornfields and stuff. Yeah, to me, it yeah. looked very down south, except when they're in the town, but on their way to the town, it seems. Well, very, I mean, there's cornfields and stuff in upstate yeah. New York. 
Um, I mean, it's a very big, uh, you know, you get those Halloween. Oh, yeah, 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 like yeah. Corn. Of course. Corn oh, field, maize hay and stuff. Yeah. And stuff. And apple farms. Apple now, chicken. the kid, now, when he rides, when he arrives at those quote unquote crossroads after. Oh, and we did the little girl who says, oh, you're my mommy, whatever. She's in the new Scream Queens. Oh, yeah. So she was one of the girls in the new Scream Queen show or something like that. Yeah. And the paper boy that he's like, what, you know, like. Uh, what day is it or whatever? You know, like, have you ever heard of Hobbs End? Yeah, he's, he's like, like no. no. He's like, well, which way is the closest town? Just go straight up. That's Hayden Christensen's first role, who went on to be in, wow. the, in the crappy Star yeah, Wars yeah, yeah. prequel. That's Hayden Christensen? <laughs> yeah. That's, is he also him when he's on the loop? No, no, no. Okay, yeah, I didn't think old, That's like a teenager. Okay, this is more of a younger kid. That's, that's like we boy. said, that's frightening, that whole idea. And like, So then he gets, back, he gets to the crossroads. He asks the kid, where is he? He's kind of back out out of the bubble he he has the book with him he le- he leaves the book in the crossroads he gets to a motel it's shipped to him and he can't get rid of this book it's in the mouth of madness that that sutter kane has given him to bring back to the world and every time he burns it in the and he can't get rid of it and then he finally gets back to new york he goes to meet um uh chuck heston chuck heston's like he has no memory of ever even this is where it gets crazier he didn't he's like we never sent you with an editor what he says there's that yeah, girl on, again <laughs> he went on by yourself. yeah well, i don't know why you keep bringing it up and then he's like you know um you gave it to us months ago we're already we've been out for seven weeks you fucking idiot and then he's like you know and then he brings up about the movies coming out and then we pat he passes the alley one more time and he sees the, the posters again he looks and he pulls some of the posters back and then in there it's the um He's it's like the poster of him in on the, the mouth co- on the cover of in yeah. the mouth of madness. Well, um, you know, it's funny. We didn't even bring up the the, the very much the the the, the mo- we we when he's leaving Hobbs End and getting out of the church, we get a visual glimpses of those monsters, and those are yeah. very much H.P. Lovecraft esque monsters. Well, yeah, it's also important. It's like we never Tentacle. see. It's always like very flash cutty. Yeah, we never really get a good look at them, which is. In in H.P. Lovecraft's stories, he never the 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 monsters in H.P. Lovecraft's stories are always like so terrifying to see that they're beyond description. You know, they're so undescribable. They're so hideous that you can't. There's yeah, no yeah. way to describe. So it's like Carpenter's like, how do we? How could we show them then? And so his solution was that we only see them for split seconds. You know, it's all very like flash cuts to black to then see, you know, it's almost like strobing. Like you bear, you barely see them. You just get a sense of what they're like and you never really get to make really fully out what they are. Um, except for like when you see them in the painting or at the, you know, maybe a little bit at the, at the bed and breakfast. Now playing back into the movie magic aspect of this behind the scenes thing, there was a TV television special in the 90s and I think I had it on tape I think we even watched it one time when we were freshmen because I had taped it off of television and it was hosted by the late Jonathan Brandis who was on Sequest with Roy Scheider and I think Roy Scheider might have been in, been, in it too, been in it as well but it was very much all about uh, special effects in movies and it was talking about matte painting and the act of matte painting and there was a section a short section where they interviewed Greg Nicotero who's now best known for Walking Dead yeah because um, K and B, his uh, the, his company with uh, I think Kenny Berger and uh, I forget what the K anyway K and B is the, who did the special effects. So there was this little section even before I think I saw the movie of uh, them doing all the practical effects. Them the doing 
you know, all the big monsters and the running down the large hallway. Well, they wanted to, to the, you got to actually see like what they all look like. And, and there was a, there was an idea where it's like they, that. I guess it was the idea that they wanted to have them the, the, them see this world. It got a little too ambitious, so. They got the idea. Didn't KMB get the idea? Why don't we just have the frame freeze and you can tear away and see into the yeah. the world and into then the void? Well, you know that's uh, you know that's very much that moment for me is very much like my favorite moment in night on a new nightmare, which is when Heather Loggenkamp goes to talk to Wes Craven about the about what's going and you know like Freddie and blah blah blah, and then as we pan away, we pan to Wes Craven's computer. And it says it's the dialogue of what they just said. Like he's writing, <laughs> like Wes Craven is writing what's happening. It's just like, oh fuck, like what's a real moment in that movie? This is I love this moment in *In the Mouth of the Madness*, where it's like uh, Sutter Kane like tears a tears a hole in reality. Yeah, you know, literally. Yeah, right. And there's face. this big. Uh, hole and it's and then she starts reading the book. And he, he goes. Ap- he goes into. He approaches the void yeah, and he looks <laughs> in there and then he starts looking and he's in the abyss and he looks and then, yeah, she's literally reading out of the manuscript at the page of what he's seeing and then we realize that in the mouth of madness, the manuscript he's finished is narrating what he's seeing, what he's doing, and then he starts to run and she doesn't want to run and so he starts running and you see these monsters and you said they're very much practical monsters. Um. Greg Nicotero hurt his foot. Didn't one of them run over his foot at one yeah. moment like that? Because I mean, the, you know, at least like one lumbering. of them, to my recollection, is like this huge, like mounted, like car on wheels with like all these mo- like animatronic monsters and things yeah. attached to it alongside other monsters. I mean, it's this big mass of monsters. I mean, that part where 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 she um. When she comes back to him and they're like in the, uh, and she, you're saying, I'm losing me. And then she goes into the bathroom. That's a very scary where you see like, you know, you hear that noise. Oh, it's very a, much like John Carpenter's The yeah, Thing. Yeah, it's very much a nod to The Thing. You know, the tentacles you, under the door. Yeah, and, and you see like the silhouette and she comes out and she's fine. It's like, hello, that, you know, it's like, and then she's face. trying to kiss someone. Or she, or, no, that's later on when they're in the car. And then when they stop the car, she gets out and she's able to. Uh, she like cracks her back, which they do with a contortionist, except they just put a mask on. Uh, yeah, no, uh, that's a, you know, thing. That's another. Those are some of the other things. Uh, all some these of the nice things that don't sweet special effects. Yeah, but it's also some of that stuff. Unfortunately, I don't think holds up as well as say the thing, for instance. I yeah, mean, things the special effects in the thing hold up like nobody's business. Yeah, some of the stuff in here uh, unfortunately doesn't, and I think part of that is due to the fact that New Line, Bob Shea, and New Line Cinema could not could not figure out like well, how much money they wanted to spend on this movie. Like they just kept on changing the budget. Sandy King and Carpenter would come back with like, well, we can do it for this much money. And they'd be like, okay. And then the next day they'd be like, you know what, let's do it for less. And then ultimately like, it's like they made it for like $8 million or something like that. And it's like, unfortunately, you know, for Carpenter is like, you know, I, this is a movie that Carpenter is very fond of. He considers it one of his better films. Um, but you know, there are things in the script that just, Unfortunately, you know, he talks about like things had to be inferred more than shown. Um, well, that's a great example when he's tearing the, the reality. Yeah. Industrial Light and Magic were, were like, if you want to save money, just have it be like we discussed. You know, yeah. he just opens it up and he can tear, you know, that's kind of cheaper way to go. The ending know? was much, the ending in the script was much bigger. And so they kind of had to do an alternate version of trying to get across the same thing with like the, with the, with the movie theater scene. Cause the way it was, uh, DeLuca originally written, it was a much bigger thing and they just didn't have the budget to do it. Um, and, uh, so, you know, but that's, you know, like anything, you know, yeah. when you talk about these kinds of these, the trouble of getting the act of trying to get movies made 
you know, it's is something that comes up a lot, especially like we talked about it for hours last yeah. week with the Rocketeer. And we talked about the uh the difference or the similarities between Sutter Kane's novels and H. P. Lovecraft titles where you have um the Whisperer of the Dark, it's actually the Whisperer in Darkness, the thing in the basement, it's things on the doorsteps, Haunter out of time, it's the Haunter of the Dark, the Shadow out of time, so it's like they're very much yeah. uh, similar. And the t- uh, church, we said that it's the, it was the Cathedral of the Transfiguration. Yeah, it's a Slovak yeah. uh, Benzatine, right Roman Catholic Church, you said, in Markham. Um, as part of Carpenter's... Uh, trilogy of the apocalypse trilogy you know with the thing we have the notion mccready claims you know when he's recording uh whoever might find this tape kind of thing uh trust is a hard thing oh and i guess he's talking to the doc he's talking to wilford brimley yeah um blair he's talking to blair and blair's like i don't know who to trust anymore and and uh, or something like that and mccready's like trust is a hard thing to come by these days um and prince of darkness uh we have the line faith is a hard thing to come by these days and in the month of madness we have uh kind of a, a different twist on it because it's dealing with much different things and in, in a way you could look at this as kind of like a, a weird sequel to prince of darkness but we have sam neill's line that reality isn't what it used to be um the sooner we get off this planet the better which is kind of that notion that you're talking about with hp lovecraft of like seeing the you know the decadence of the 20s man like this is going to be the kind of like the ruin like the fall of, of the roman empire of our of our of uh of humanity is like this uh, the decadence of like the sodom and Gomorrah kind of mentality and this is the part of his his apocalyptic trilogy because at the end of the thing it's kind of um hinted at that that if the alien got loose it could destroy the earth yeah uh and i guess um with prince of darkness, darkness it's like it's uh, the anti-god which yeah we have to do prince of darkness it's such a weird conceptual movie uh, it's kind of like being about like you know the devil it's a, there's it's it takes a very scientific look at it it's like well if the you know with with you know uh, a force you know a force on anything it exerts the same amount of force uh, you know as resistance blah 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 you know the foot you know to again the the idea of two sides of the same coin if you have god then there has to be an anti-god yeah and so, like, in a lot of ways, uh, Prince of, uh, In the Mouth of Madness could be looked at as, well, what happens if that... The, in the Mouth of Madness is, like, is that anti-God being released? Yeah, well, you how, know? how and how would it come to the earth and in which way would it be disseminated? It could be through book form. And, you know, and again, it's very much a satire, like we said, about uh, the media and how, um, you know, the, the notion of things like television and movies... Um, can you know violence in television and movies can affect people and make them violent and the other you know the, the aside from the notions which i think are fascinating and one thing i always loved about this movie like what is reality what happens when reality is not reality is insanity just the majority what the majority dictates can uh can sanity and and insanity easily switch places if the balance of the majority shifts yeah. like that stuff is all kind of like fascinating that goes to back me. to like nietzsche and, yeah. and then that's another thing that hp lovecraft was like a student of frederick nietzsche's kind of thoughts and of the great philosopher and that was kind of like one of the ma- many aspects that you know that, that these people like to like you know think about and then you know i think what's 
you know, the thing that's frightening, you know, we talk about in horror, we've talked, we've discussed it in previous things. You have like the personal horrors or, you know, I'm afraid of heights. I'm afraid of spiders. I'm afraid of this. And then you have like the universal fears, um, you know, fear of death, fear of injury, fear of losing a loved one, fear of, uh, you know, loss of identity is those are the horror movies that I really like or, you know, this idea of loss of identity, which is, you know, we, we have that with the thing, obviously, um, invasion of the body snatchers, obviously a perfect example of that in a way, the zombie movies, night of the living dead, mm, like losing your, you know, losing yeah. yourself to this plague or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Know, and becoming, we're them and they're us. We're kind of like foils. Um, and in a way we, we get it here. You know, the idea of losing identity in in the way that, uh, you know, the one thing we have, you know, if you if you if you take a religious standpoint, the one thing that we have that nothing else has is free will. Yeah. And this idea of uh, do we have it? You know, it's very and, much and what if is it's taken away? You know, we have, you know, Trent gives the statement uh you know, I'm my own man. No one pulls uh, my only pulls my strings, but me. I'm I'm happy, which is like becomes it's early on in the movies when he's talking to Robbie in the yeah. restaurant, and that becomes like ironic because we find out that, you know, I f- is he really? Is he just a character in the book? Do we does he prize himself on his free will so much that by the end of the movie, the the notion that he doesn't have free will, yeah, is possibly and his realization pop, of that. yeah is what makes him insane yeah the, the the horror of and i feel like there's other examples of this that i can't think of right now that in other films or stories where the character slowly realizes that they're not in control that either they're being written by somebody else or they're there is a puppeteer kind of d- guiding it it's yeah. kind of like as of this cast coming out the week before with they just premiered westworld on hbo and that's kind of the idea of westworld where these machines are so suddenly having becoming artificially aware and then realizing that they're not, you know, they're, yeah. you start real questioning yourself is, am I, what am I? And it's the whole origin of my something, or, sure. you know, are you the dreamer? Or are you the figment of someone else's dream? Like Lewis Carroll said, and it's like, you don't know what, so it's, it's, it's such a, it's, it's a, it's an insane, but then it's an also very frightening idea to suddenly, suddenly start to realize where it's, um, I, I really think on the tip of my tongue, there's other movie. I can't think of something that's like, I feel like there's just a, real obvious example of something else where it's like it starts to change and then the person's like no you didn't do that and he's like yes i did and it's you know and it's all very like well i mean you even look at it even in a non-horror aspect you take a movie like truman show yeah you know, yeah he's a guy he, that feels like he's every and you know, everything is fake he's yeah. living a life and then he realizes that he's really his entire life has he's been, been set up as a, is, is a, is in a, a reality almost, show you know in a sense scripted to a certain extent yeah um and c- certainly where we live in an, uh, in an age where that has been taken over by reality shows where now people don't realize i mean certainly you and i do because and then you you work within the genre how unreal reality shows (laughs) and i don't think some people don't well in the business now i don't even think they really call it reality television it's it's the difference between scripted television and non-scripted television which is a much looser i mean do people realize how unrealistic or unreal these reality shows are like there's actual scripts you always see on like a thing being passed around facebook or whatever it's like you know the shocking 
list of the ten shocking lies of reality television, Pawn Stars, all the crazy lies, all this stuff. And it's like I look at these things because I work in it. I'm like I watch them. Like really, these are the ten most li- like if people even knew. <laughs> I mean, I think people are starting to become aware of it. Yeah. And now there's even a show that's like I think a narrative, like a like a scripted show, playing on like behind the scenes of The Bachelor. Yeah, kind of. I don't forget what it's called. I haven't seen it as, as I've heard about it. I think it's starting to become kind of more in the public eye, a public awareness, I should, should say, that that you know, quote unquote, reality television is just another form of scripted television. Yeah, um, uh, and it kind of it kind of replaced the old soap. Like you think of like soaps or whatever. They were supposed to be a form of reality, and you were supposed to live yourself through these characters and yeah. identify with these characters. And then when that's taken away by reality shows be it like the real world from MTV the origin and then to this stuff where it's like no these are just these reality shows are just a bunch of scripts too this is what you're going to do this weekend this is what's going to yeah, happen yeah. And, you know very much so where you see like the you know sometimes the stand-ups are just so poorly acted like today we went to the thing <laughs> it was really good I'm going you know it's just like yeah, so it's yeah. it's it's interesting to see now and then you have getting back to this you're in a certain extent we are having this moment in the the last decade of like what is reality really and i feel like in a way like media is blurry yeah and i feel like there's people out there maybe younger people so much so that have don't have a frame of reference where they maybe they believe it all and a lot of them then start to imitate reality shows i see people talking on their cell phones on speaker like you know and it's like you're not on a reality show we don't need to hear the other person (laughs) or you have you know just people starting to see reality shows and assume that's how they're supposed to act that's how they're supposed to be that's yeah, what they're supposed yeah. to do these are the it's kind of you know, own you know it would be interesting like a like a kind of a not a remake but another movie yeah like an in the mouth of madness type movie reality but it's really with reality type because you're right in a certain way i never really thought about like the the lines are being blurred as to what's reality and what's not reality at this point it's and i feel like there's of, ignorant, because of the media yeah and i feel like there's ignorant people out there who don't really realize that and there's you know maybe i don't know if they're you know especially with like the whole the housewife shows the um those sh- MTV shows of people living together and all they're doing is having sex and drinking and or the, then, you know, these fix-up shows or these, you know, uh, you know, these go-buy stuff, you know, pawn yeah. shop shows, whatever. It's like people don't realize that these are all kind of just set up, formulate, formatted yeah, shows yeah. about real people, real places. Um, and then the... I like that the uh, the tagline of this film is uh, "lived any good books lately." Yeah, yeah, you know, that's pretty. Well, you good. know, you get a lot of those kind of like great one liners, like Sutter Kane, like "I think, therefore you are." Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's it's a it's such a you know it's a flawed movie. I you know I I will admit that you know there's things and and there are like I said there's things about it that maybe don't hold up so as well now so many years later, but. Um, it's just a movie that I've always really loved, and and uh, not about a year and a half ago, maybe a little bit more, there was this big John Carpenter retrospective at BAM, uh, Brooklyn Academy of Music, that has like a theater program, uh, a cinema program there also, and they did a whole month where they played all of John Carpenter's movies, and uh, the three movies I made sure I went to go see um, were Prince of Darkness, yeah, because I had never seen that on the big screen. I've seen the thing, and I've seen Halloween projected in the theater before. Um, in the Mouth of Madness, just because, like I said, this is just a movie. You know, we use the term near and dear to our hearts often, yeah. And uh, I and I don't, for the most part, I don't think we exaggerate. You know, like Rocketeer was a movie that yeah. <laughs> is a movie that's very near and dear to this very much. Is like I explained the first half hour of the show is me explaining the importance of this movie to my entire life, basically. Uh, 
And then I went to see Starman because I was like, you know what? I haven't seen Starman since you know I hadn't seen Starman since probably it came out. I, I, I haven't seen. I've never seen Starman all um, the way through since then. And all through, like honestly, looking at the. If you look at his catalog, those are the three movies that, like, I couldn't have picked three better movies to go see the, uh, projected with an audience. It's amazing to think that, like, out of all his catalog, he did something like Starman because um, uh, it's, I, I feel like every damn podcast I bring my damn wife up, but that's a movie to her. She just is, like, so neat. Like, Starman is, like, a special place in her heart. She always talks about she may not be able to watch it because it's so I think I mean, talk emotional. about it at a point because I think last when I went to go see them, I think somehow maybe it was we were, did the thing around that, and I talked about the experience of maybe going to see these Carpenter movies. I mean, it is a it's a shockingly beautiful and well done movie. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. tear jerking. Oh, yeah, really yeah, I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it's one of those very um, like meta movies. Last scene of the movie, he finishes talking to David Warner, and then all of a sudden, it's like the last shot is kind of released out of this cell, and he starts walking around, and then, you know, the whole end of the world. He, he moseys into a theater. He starts. He sits down to start watching. This is Sam Neill. He starts watching yeah, it, yeah. and then he starts seeing the movie itself. And he starts, and he starts seeing clips. He's watching the movie we he's just watching watched himself. Yeah, yeah and, the, and very, and he's laughing. And then you know, and then near the very end of it, before it starts, you know, before the credits hit, he's laughing. He's laughing. And he starts crying, and it turns. So do you think it's kind of these things where he kind of, kind of realizes that he is in fact a kid? It's like the it's the insanity or the the. Uh, the, I think it's the realization. Yeah, the realization that, the shit and the, the that it is. It is. It's, he is uh, a character in a. It, yeah, I mean, I love that as he's walking in the movie poster. You know, that's the poster. We see him, and that like book cover is the poster for the movie as he walks into the movie theater. And but then at the very top it says a film by John Carpenter. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and it like has if we start it's like, again, know, we're blurring these lines of like this is a movie within the movie. It's like and Trent it's and direct, Sandy or whatever. And I always felt that. Uh, Michael, maybe it was a, maybe it was a, a writers guild thing, but I always felt like Michael DeLuca for this movie should have used the alias Sutter Kane. Like the, uh, the poster, how awesome would it be? Like if you wouldn't know until you seen yeah, it. You don't know like, what the hell it afterwards is. Afterwards, you see on the poster it says the movie's written by Sutter Kane. Would be or like do Michael DeLuca based on a book written uh, by yeah. Sutter Kane. Just, that would have been like, brilliant. Like that would have been a stroke of brilliance. Yeah, I've always loved the ending of this movie. Yeah, it's one of you know the beautiful thing about John Carpenter's movies, and I say beautiful in a you know in a weird in a weird sense because. This idea of uncertainty or doom, you know, depending or, you know, or bittersweet is basically at the end of every John Carpenter movie. You know, you have something that's either uncertain, the thing, it's uncertainty. Or Uh, dread, you know, it's like this is so Yeah, or just sheer dread, you know, which is this, you know, or you take a thing like They Live, bittersweet. Maybe it's hope. You know, spoiler alert. You've been warned, John Nada. We lose John Nada, but he wins. Yeah, he, you know, he exposes what's going on. Um, Prince of Darkness again, some uncertainty, maybe some doom. However, you want to look at it. The, the, the car radio Hall- starts in Christine. <laughs> Christine Halloween. Michael Myers isn't sitting there. Yeah. You get to this, it's like the ultimate. Like, uh, it's the world is over. Yeah, the shit is at the fan. Sam Neill's the only one that really knows yeah. what happened. And and I think you're right. It's like this realization of him being a pawn in this story, the realization that the world's ended, all this stuff. Uh, 
culminates in this moment of uh, beautifully performed kind of insanity. Yeah, he's and he's great in the movie. I mean, his his he really Carpenter really loved, really wanted Sam Neill to be in it from the very beginning. Bob Shea and even Michael DeLuca were very hesitant. Um, they wanted someone that was a bigger star, and uh, they got Chuck Heston. And uh, Carpenter was like. Uh, Sam Neill. He was in Jurassic Park. That was the biggest movie of all time. It just came out last year. So that's how he ended up getting Sam Neill in the movie. And he just worked with him prior. Like it's well, yeah, but that's yeah, like, yeah, that yeah, was yeah. the argument that he used to get Sam Neill into it. You know, Carpenter, I remember seeing an interview with Carpenter, and they asked him what his favorite actors, and he said, my favorite actors are Donald Pleasance. Yeah. Uh, Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell. Jeff Bridges. Jeff Bridges. And Sam Neill. Sam Neill. Yeah. <laughs> great, great handful of actors. That's a, that's a hell of a you fucking... Know? Um, Quartet, right then. So then the movie ends up coming out. It comes out in Italy first for whatever reason. Yeah, and nobody really. Yeah, knows no one understands why. why. And then a couple weeks later, it comes out in America. It only is out for like three weeks in it America. It makes its money back, but it is not a. It's a financial it's made success. for like eight million. It makes just like nine million or something like that. And then it kind of is a financial disappointment. It's a lot of uh, mixed reviews. Blah blah blah. People at the time don't really care. I think for there's it. also uh, unfavorable comparisons to New Nightmare, which I think was somewhat of a success because of you know obviously being linked to one of the biggest horror franchises of all time. Um, so in a way, it was coming out uh, in the shadow of that. Even though I think as a whole, this is a, a better movie. Even though I am a big fan of New Nightmare, uh, it's a very interesting thing in the '90s. I mean, you can argue it goes into the '80s. This idea of meta. You know, Freddy and Jason, those movies start to become parodies of themselves in a certain way. You can look at that. You can, you know, there's an argument for that. But in the 90s, we have New Nightmare, very meta reality, what's what's real, what's in the movie, those blurring of those lines, this movie, and then the ne- and then Wes Craven's next movie, Scream, which is total... Oh, yeah. It's just, you know, like... Yeah, hats in the ring that it's just... Uh, this, they even a, tell you. It's like the faculty. They're, they're telling yeah, you that they're parodying this movie. Which is also written by Kevin Williamson. Yeah. Uh, it's a... It's an interesting time for horror cinema, um, and uh, and in the mouth of madness is kind of part yeah. of that. Yeah, they got a lot of time. criticism for it being weak and generic, and then they some people even about the rock score, which I actually I was kind of hesitant about. I was like, oh, maybe it's not going to hold up as well because it's a '90s no, hard it's fucking awesome. Yeah, right? it's, it's it's great. <laughs> and then like and then the end, like as he's laughing, dunk 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 it's, I, like I said, I would love to have an alternate. You can just like a, one of those things yeah, you can like just put on, you know. Inter- audio, hit the audio button yeah. and you have, uh, you know. Okay, come on. Off never, never land. So um, uh, uh, Sleepover Stars. Uh, sleep, for Six me, out of five. <laughs> for me, and like I said, this is probably one of the most important movies yeah. to me. Uh, one thing that I uh, do need to mention real quick, which is kind of a funny thing, if I can find in my notes where it is written. Where it is written. There's the uh, there's a credit in the end credits, which I never noticed before uh, researching this. At the end, you know, you have, like, the song, what songs are in it, yeah, you know, yeah. like the Carpenter song written by Paul Williams and stuff, you know, only just begun. You have the credits of that. Yeah. Then you have, like, this. That's actually funny, too, because doesn't he say, he's like, not oh, the Carpenters, no, too. The like, they've also fallen. <laughs> like, no, they've succumbed to it, And too. then you get, like, the, shot, the film was shot in Canada, blah, yeah. blah, blah. And then you have, like, you know, no... This isn't, you know, any characters in this are not yeah. representative of anybody real. And because of the animals in this, you have a credit that says animal action was monitored by the American Humane Association uh, with onset supervision by the Toronto Humane Society. No animal was harmed in the making of this film. Now, after that, 
I've seen this movie more times than I can count. The credit after that says human interaction was monitored by the Interplanetary Psychiatric Association. The body count was high. The casualties are heavy. Wow. That's <laughs> funny. That's hilarious. A little kind of hidden yeah. nugget. A little, yeah, because there's something wrong with little, that dog. <laughs> I feel like they cut so you feel like, I think it's you know, just another dog. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, but that's what you're supposed to imply, that they went yeah, after yeah. they killed the dog, or hurt the dog, and then it's like... So it's there's hilarious. a little Easter egg there. Yeah, at the end. a little, a little, little like, bit of carpenter sense like of humor um, at the end. It's almost like Hitchhiker's Guide or something like that there. Um, there's also, you know, another a series, um, which is perhaps a little bit of a, a, a hint of what's coming up in two weeks. Another series that I think this film lends itself a lo- uh, lends a lot uh, owes a lot to, and a series that Carpenter has admittedly many times said as an influence is the, Qu- the Quatermass series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so I think you know we didn't get into that, but uh, that that's those Quatermass films yeah. are great, and that's I think there's a there's definitely a little bit of a nod to that. And I think, yeah, like we said, all the B, all the character actors are great. Love myself, John Glover. John Glover's phenomenal. John Glover, it. Dave Warner, Peter yeah. Jason again, who yeah. uh, got Carpenter staple. Jurgen Prochnow. I love Chuck Heston's little cameo. Jurgen uh, Prochnow from The Keep. Yeah, yeah. Das Boot. <laughs> um, great, great, great. Um, so five out of six out of five. Six out of five. For yeah. Me. Uh, uh, buckets of pizza. I just, it, you know, like I said, I recognize it's flawed, but this is um, a very important movie to me. A movie that I did. To literally see on a Saturday night movie sleepover, and uh, uh, me too and by it, myself. And it was a and it was a sleepover that quite literally changed my life. I mean, it's what uh, the book that I spent three years working on that's out right now. That's um, like I said, probably my biggest uh, professional accomplishment is to can, date can be traced back to yeah uh, me seeing this movie and falling instantly in love with the music, and then of course. Um, sparking a love that I didn't even know existed that I had for John Carpenter, you know, like making me realize that John Carpenter had been such a big and such an important part of my life up until then. Be like, oh my god, uh, he did this movie, he did that movie. I'm like, I'm a John Carpenter fan. I didn't even know it. Wow, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. Uh, and th- that's why Carpenter's been so heavily uh, represented. And 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 you know, it's yeah. I think this is part of. There's been this huge, I'd say over the last five years, maybe a little bit more, there's been this appreciation for Carpenter growing. Yeah. Um, and I think it's kind of, uh, it, and it hasn't plateaued. If anything, this summer, because of the tour and the albums, it's just been skyrocketing. Well, maybe and I'm so glad that we, uh, you know, e- even late in the season of this uh, riding this Carpenter wave, um, that we, you know, we, we did do a Carpenter movie this year. Yeah. Um, because you know, the previous two years we've done multiple. <laughs> you know, this uh, in, in terms of. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did uh, one or two a year, so we got one in already. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I, I think I kind of agree that this might be kind of his for me his last. Like I, I like Ghost of Mars. A lot of people don't like Ghost of Mars. Ghost um, of Mars doesn't hold up as well as his other films do. I yeah. liked Ghost of Mars when it came out, but on watching it recently, it just doesn't yeah, have the longevity. Come out. Uh, I didn't vampires. I had a lot of uh, ambition for or a lot of, and I, I, I have, I still remember the things I don't like about it. And yeah. then it's like I liked the, you know, the other things he did. Like I didn't ever saw the war cigarette burns, which is that short. I like that, you know. Yeah. So, um, but this was like, yeah, he's this still, was a guy. Well, he was still hitting on all cylinders. In my yeah, opinion, this you know? was like this was a 
culmination. You know, he of, still had a studio behind him. He still had a lot of work. stuff. You know, I mean, you know? it was a low. I mean, the fact that he pulled it off for, for even 1995 for like when he million, made it, yeah. like eight million dollars. I mean, that's still that's a insanely small, yeah, small movie for a movie. And and you know, there's parts about this movie that I like that it feels small. You know, there's a little bit of a claustrophobic feel to this movie, and I think that has to do with a limited budget. Yeah. But I think it works because it's the it's like the sheltered mind of a you know the world of a book yeah you know it's it's i think it works the kind of the claustrophobia that comes from maybe a smaller budget i think works brilliantly in this movie and that's just another example of like limitation you know working for art and not so much working against it whereas you know given unlimited budget maybe this movie wouldn't have been as good as it was something about like having those limitations makes you attack things think about things a little bit different be more creative to come up with solutions yeah and i think it's one of this is another example of like that working and like i said carpenter considers this one of his better films too so um which i think says a lot about it you know he's a guy that i don't think is very reflective yeah <laughs> in general yeah, yeah yeah about his work and the fact that he looks back on this movie and, and it's like you know what this is you know like i said I, he probably thinks the same thing like it's flawed but you know what it's i'm proud of that movie you know like that's a, it's a big it's a big movie, and to pull it off, especially on a lower budget, it's really impressive. Yeah, I give it three out of five sleepover stars. I think it's a solid movie. It's good, and it, you know, uh, it's fun. It certainly is, you know. Certainly. And it should be noted that he wrote this. He did the score with, a, with another composer uh, as a partner named Jim Lang. Yeah. Um, um, no release to Steve Lang. <laughs> Stephen Lang. Uh, so yeah, it was good and. Um, this is the first one into the entree of uh, of the uh, Halloween horror of 2016. We've uh, got three left, and we're going in all different directions. <laughs> yeah, we're going to, so, you know, take a little... Yeah. We don't like to, you know, try to give you a little variety. Yeah, variety in the... Uh, uh, we'll be back in two weeks. Check us out on Facebook. Check us out on uh, our, our own website. Check us out on Twitter. Check us out on... Uh, all the different places that you can get our podcast from. iTunes, Stitcher, yeah. all those stuff. Uh, I have books, Scored to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers, at Scored to Death on Twitter and Facebook. It's available on Amazon. You can probably go to any bookstore you want uh, near you and order it if they don't already have it. And uh, a little plug that I think recently or this month or maybe just a couple of weeks ago or whatever, I wrote a little article about film music for Movie Maker Magazine. They're putting out uh, their second annual guide to making horror movies. And they asked me to write a little article about uh, giving tips to directors about, about writing a successful horror score. Ooh. So well, uh, When's that out? Uh, I think... I think it hits stores late September, and I think that the e-book version of it is coming out in October. Oh, so, so it right, should be, should be right, right about now. You might be able, you should be able to find it. Movie Maker. If, if, it's, if it's not, if you can't find it yet, you should be able to find it soon. Oh, very good. Movie Maker's like annual guide to making horror movies. Very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, we'll be back in two weeks. Uh, we hope you had a good time, yeah, and we hope you um, <laughs> continue to have a good time. And uh, you know. Uh, just, I guess, go read some Sutter Kane. And I guess it should be also duly noted that Blake did wear his I John did. Carpenter shirt. I wore he my wore latest. And John Carpenter wear. Maybe we'll take a picture of it. Yeah, yeah. A John Carpenter. Even I wore this one because it's got Samuel. It does have Samuel. It has everybody in it. Even Christine. Everybody a little bit of everybody. Yeah, even the guy from Assault on Precinct 13 there. It's pretty cool. So, yeah. See you back in two weeks. Um, uh, yeah. Until then. Later.
later. <laughs>